BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I meet a lot of listeners uh, in the grocery store, in the gym, in an airport, on an airplane. Be bopping around, I don't know. I'll meet you at games. I'll see you on the concourse or inside the stadium. And and I always like seeing uh, listeners of the show. But the question, it's the same recurring question. I get the same question in a lot of places. And the subject matter is different, but the question's the same. The question that I get is, what's wrong with, and then there's a blank. What's wrong with, Oregon State men's basketball. What's wrong with leadership in the city of Portland as it pertains to Major League Baseball to Portland? What's wrong with the Blazers? What's wrong with the Pac-12 Conference? What's wrong with filling any variety of athlete, coach, program, it, over the years, that's that's the uh, the refrain that I hear over and over again. So I want to start today's show by uh, by opening the phone lines and allowing you to to pepper me with those kinds of questions. What's wrong with, or what is going on with, or hey, have you uh, uh, have you any insight into fill in the blank? Uh, it's your time. It's an open line. Let's call it an open line Tuesday at five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. I bring it up. Because I wrote today at johnconzano.com about what's wrong with Cal basketball. And I'm not going to go all into it, but if you haven't read it already, it really is the Rosetta Stone for the Pac-12 Conference, particularly the men's basketball programs in the conference. Those are who are investing in basketball, spending money on chartered flights, spending money on coaching, spending money on meals and game day expenses and practice facilities, those who are investing are winning. I had one athletic director at a university that plays at the very top of the Pac-12 conference in basketball uh, say to me, hey, if you're not investing, what are you doing? Like, you have to invest. The University of Arizona and UCLA both charter all of their flights for the entire men's basketball season. Think about that. They charter every single flight. Non-conference game, conference game, doesn't matter if it's a short trip, doesn't matter if it's a long trip. Uh, that little 500-mile trip between Colorado and Salt Lake City, they charter it. They both charter it. Dave Hickey, the athletic director at Arizona, told me, hey, we charter it all. We're not flying commercial. It's a recruiting selling point, sure. But it's also designed to make the players know and feel like the athletic department is interested in them resting uh, I had one uh, staff member at UCLA tell me the altitude is real between Salt Lake City and Colorado. And they, don't, they want the players to have full recovery, full ability to sit in a hotel room versus sitting in an, in an airport. Rest, recuperate, all of that stuff. And Dana Oldman came on this show uh, about 10 or 12 days ago, and he even said, he said that the University of Oregon looked around, saw that Arizona and UCLA were chartering every road trip and the ducks themselves decided that when they go on the road they will charter as well it was a reaction dana altman said the pac-12 should be doing this across the board i reached out to the pac-12 conference 
in the wake of that, and Jamie Zaninovich, who is the deputy commissioner in the Pac-12 conference, he told me that, you know, they don't mandate it, but they do encourage the programs to take charter flights. And it's really interesting as you look at sort of the success of certain programs in the conference, uh, really the top six teams in the men's basketball standings are all chartering their flights, including UCLA, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, Oregon. They're all chartering, and they're all winning at a clip that the others are not. Now, it may help that the Pac-12 conference uh, bottom feeders are not doing it, and, but the truth of the matter is the, uh, the investment in basketball is evident. If you are investing, you are winning in men's college basketball. It makes me think about programs like Oregon State and what they don't have and what they're not doing. Uh, they've obviously made some mistakes. Wayne Tinkle has in recruiting in the wake of the Elite Eight appearance. Kind of wasted a recruiting class. Uh, I know there was COVID. I know they were recruiting via Zoom. But it was really disappointing to see Oregon State not capitalize on the Elite Eight appearance. And I think there's some questions about what Oregon State is trying to do, what they want to be. But I want you also to fill in the blank by asking your own questions. What's wrong with fill in the blank? Or do you have another question? 503-417-7575 is the number. And I want to open this to Stephen and Peter as well as we look around the sports landscape. I'm wondering what's wrong with Cal basketball, and I wrote all about it. It has to do with the same problem that I always talk about when I get invited to speak to groups. One of the things that I talk about is this congruency of vision that comes top-down, and if you're a listener to the show, you have heard me uh, drone on and on and on about the fact that if you don't have your ownership or your chancellor or president, top leadership in a college, ownership with a pro team, if you don't have them on board, and if they don't understand what the mission is, or they're not interested in the mission, and it doesn't matter what your athletic director, your general manager, your head coach, your players really want to do because most of the time when a program is struggling, whether it be a professional team or a college team, the answer is right at the top. Most of the time, it is. It's not injuries, although they'll say, oh, we have injuries, you know, we've been hurt, we don't have our guys, we don't have in the lineup, you know, we've been hurt, oh, woe is me, all this stuff. But a lot of that is symptomatic. If you have depth on your team and you encounter injuries, it's not a big a deal. If you have uh, great recruiting and great training and you're you're invested in your strength and conditioning and travel, uh, you tend to have less injuries. You have less fatigue. Your team plays better. They're more consistent. In fact, you're recruiting better players. It's a trickle-down effect. So you can cry about injuries all you'd like, but we all know how that works in sports. And I thought it was really interesting because Cal's bellyaching about the number of injuries that they have had this season. And I had uh, one of the best analytics guys in basketball take a look at that for me. And I said, hey, can you quantify how many games Cal has lost to players due to injury? And he, he came back to me and he said, look, uh, Cal's had a tough time. They're second in the Pac-12. They are um, 28th nationally when it comes to injuries. Uh, they've lost, uh, you know, tw uh, excuse me, they've lost 28 games missed by rotation players this season. That's uh, second highest in the Pac-12. And I went, well, who was first? And they said, well, the University of Oregon. They've lost 34 
games uh, with rotation players. But the difference is that the Ducks have far more depth, better bench players, more resources, more administrative support, and they got a Hall of Fame coach on the bench. So Oregon's 8-5, and five, and Cal is sitting there at the bottom of the Pac-12 conference going, hey, we've got bad injuries. Well, you, didn't, you weren't any worse off than Oregon. You're just less prepared to deal with it. So you tell me, what is wrong with Oregon State men's basketball? What is wrong with leadership in general at City Hall when it comes to trying to get Major League Baseball to Portland? What is wrong with fill-in-the-blank? You tell me, 503-417-7575 is the number. We've got a great show today. Dave Wilcox will be joining us, the Hall of Fame, Pro Football Hall of Famer, father to Justin Wilcox, the Cal coach, and Josh Wilcox, who also played at Oregon, and brother to Johnny Wilcox, who played at Oregon and went to a Rose Bowl. Uh, Dave Wilcox will be joining us to talk about the Super Bowl. He's 80 years old now, and his kids. And what it's like, i got to ask him about Justin Herbert. What it was like to watch Justin Herbert grow up before his very eyes. Uh, the Herbert family and Justin, very close with the Wilcox family. I'll also ask him, did he give Justin any advice when the University of Oregon offered him the head football coaching job a couple of uh, off-seasons ago? What advice did he give him? And uh, he's also uh, helping to raise awareness and money for retired players who are uh, who have been around the game, and some of which who we have uh, it's been well documented they've struggled over the years. So uh, we'll talk to Dave Wilcox uh, later in the show. Sean Hyken will be joining us. He covers the Blazers and the NBA. We'll talk about the trade deadline coming up Thursday. Blazers' name has been out there, but uh, that is a far cry from actually making a deal. Will they make a deal? Deal or no deal for the Blazers. We'll talk about that coming up. Uh, And we'll also talk about Aaron Rodgers, who's going into darkness and into hiding to figure out what he wants to do. Uh, I'm going to let you hear Aaron Rodgers talk about it, and we're going to talk about who else needs to go into hiding, who else needs some quiet time, who else needs some solitude away from their phone and the public to try to figure out, you know, who they are, what they stand for, and whatnot. We'll talk about that in context of the NFL and Aaron Rodgers. Stephen and Peter, what's wrong with Oregon State? What's wrong with fill in the blank? You tell me. When I say that question, what is wrong with eh, what? Where does your mind go? For me, uh, you know, right in the middle of college basketball season, so I'm going to college basketball as well. I have another team in the Pac-12 that I have a problem with, and what is wrong with Washington? You look at Seattle, that area is rich in basketball talent. You look throughout the NBA, there's numerous players in the NBA that are from University of Washington, from the Seattle area, and not only just like random guys, but top picks. Marco Fultz, number one pick in the draft. Uh, you know, Terrence Ross was a lottery pick. DeJounte Murray is a really good player. Like They've had all these really good players, yet they've only made the NCAA tournament once in the last 10 years. So like why is that? You know, when when I was growing up and when I was in high school and college, like Washington was one of the better teams in the Pac twelve. They had Brandon Roy, that was the Nate Robinson era, all those guys, and it was all those homegrown Seattle guys. Like I really do question like it's the same thing in football. Kalen DeBoer comes in to Washington and re just you know re revamps that program and gets them to ten wins in one season after struggling for so many years. Is it just a coaching issue? Is it just something in the culture of the Washington basketball team? Like, I am I'm sort of a Washington basketball fan. I've always kind of liked them ever since Brandon Roy was there. But, like, I always wonder, like, why can't they be better than they are? They have they a lot of— They should be great. They should they be. Should, Eddie, yeah. you even look at their team this year. You know, Keon Brooks is a really good player. Like, he's probably an NBA guy. He'll get a shot. They have a couple of NBA guys on their team this year. 
and they're thirteen and twelve. Like they just they can't do it. I, I do have a lot of questions for it. They played USC really well the other night. I watched that game and. They, to me, they feel like a team. Like I always ask myself, are they moving in the right direction? Like, you know, when Utah hired Craig Smith a couple years ago and decided to fire its coach, and you know, and you watched kind of Utah in the wake of that firing, they really struggled to recruit. But are they moving in the right direction? Absolutely. They're sitting right now in the top half of the conference. They are not good enough to win the conference. They're nowhere close to UCLA and Arizona, USC right now. But they're hanging around where Oregon is in the standings, even though Oregon's beat up. And to me, if I'm a Utah fan, and I was in Salt Lake City on Sunday, the fans inside the arena are saying, hey, are we moving in the right direction? So the question at Washington is, you know, are they moving in the right direction? Are they making the investment? They're making some investment, but they are not committed to basketball in the way that they are committed to football. It's obvious from the spending. It's obvious from looking at, you know, the NCAA requires all the schools to publish their revenues and their expenses, uh, Washington is not investing in basketball at the at the same sort of, uh, I should say, rate that they are investing in football. Like, I don't expect Washington to outspend Arizona and UCLA. They're really going for it in basketball. They are spending like no other. But they should be around where Oregon is. Like, you know, UCLA and Arizona spend 13 to $14 million a year on basketball. Cal spends seven and a half. That's a problem. Uh, Oregon is spending 11.9. I think Oregon would be a little higher there, but they're getting some help from you know their chief booster that probably doesn't show up on the balance sheet. So I think Oregon's going for it too. They just have some injuries that have knocked them down a little bit this year, and and I think they're trying to figure out who they are too in the hierarchy of this new world of college basketball and college athletics. But Washington's curious. And when you look at Washington's track record, like, are they trending in the right direction? I feel like they're kind of going sideways right now. So I, I agree with you there that it's kind of it's disappointing to see uh, what is happening. Peter Sampson, uh, what is wrong with where do your mind? Where's your mind go? Yeah, it goes actually to Oregon State basketball. And what's wrong with them is they're they're too young. They have nine freshmen and two seniors on that team. There's a little bit of talent. But, uh, A, there's not enough talent, I don't think. And they need to grow together. They need to work. Now, I haven't spoken with Wayne Tinkle in a while, but I did have uh, assistant coach Tim Shelton on my show probably uh, three weeks ago. And he sort of alluded, we were talking about leadership, and he didn't outright say it, but I really got the impression that it's a challenge kind of getting these young guys on the same page, making the right play, not trying to get that highlight, not trying to uh, you know make themselves look good. And I don't mean that in a necessarily an inherently selfish way, but look, I mean, it's sort of the, uh, it's the way that these young kids come out of high school, right? Mixtape culture. And I, I think, uh, Oregon state is just too young. I don't know if they have the right mix of guys, but even if they do, it's got to grow a little bit. And to that point in this age of college basketball, that probably shouldn't be a problem because the transfer portal is so well Mm -hmm. out there. They should be able to go out and get some transfer guys to fill in the fill in the cracks, but they're going with a lot of freshmen, a lot of sophomores. And like Peter said, like in the game of college basketball and those high high major teams, you can't do that. And you know, with Oregon State, that's why they're struggling so much. They just have no leadership. But it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. They should be able to go out and get somebody. I'll go back two years for them because I think coming out of the Elite Eight, they misfired. And when Wayne Tinkle came on the show and he said that they made some mistakes, I went out and visited them on the road late last season. He was at his wits' end with his team. They were having issues with chemistry. The players didn't like each other. The coaches didn't like the players. The players didn't like the coaches. You could tell they were done. And I don't think, you know, Tinkle got a five-year extension 
after the Elite Eight. And I think the reason he decided to go young and start over was because he has the luxury now of knowing that Oregon State can't afford to fire him. So I think he knows, I think he knew this last offseason, hey, I got about two years to turn this thing around before my seat gets hot. And so I think he, you know, I saw him this college football season at Research Stadium. We talked a little bit. He said, you know, we're going to be better. We're going to be more fun. Uh, we're also going to be young. And I think he knew that. And so I think what Oregon State is trying to do right now is they're building for next season. And I think it's a strategy. Now, I like the hire of Eric Reveno. He brought Rev back, the former UP coach. I think it's a good hire. But uh, Wayne Tinkle's got the rest of this season, and I think one more, before his seat starts to warm to the point where Scott Barnes might have to do something. And I think he's benefited, too, let's face it, by the idea that all of the focus and the energy in Corvallis is on the football program right now and on selling seats on the west side of the Research Stadium. So I think you know he's been a beneficiary to that halo effect, but pretty quickly, if he doesn't pivot and turn around, you know, they're, they're a game out of last place. Pretty quickly, I think there's going to be cries for his job. But, you know, I do think he's got another year to, uh, to prove that. 503-417-7575, uh, what's on your mind? We'll talk about Aaron Rodgers and Dave Wilcox, Pro Football Hall of Famer, will be with us at 3.30. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Dave Wilcox will be along to talk about the Super Bowl. Bottom of the hour, Aaron Rodgers getting weird. In the 4 o'clock hour, we're going to deal with Aaron Rodgers, but I don't know if you heard his comments uh, on the Pat McAfee show. Uh, I'll play it here because I want you to hear it. Here's Aaron Rodgers. He's basically going on a vision quest like Loudon Swain did in the movie Vision Quest. Uh, he is going on a darkness retreat. Well, I'm still uh, in the art of contemplation about my future, so mm. I'm... I'm uh... Is that real? Are we really contemplating playing football again still? Is that like a heavy, heavy thought, yeah? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Wow, okay. I didn't know that. I just assumed because the way you've given answers, it's like foregone conclusion. But you have told us numerous times you haven't got through that portion of your decision-making yet. So I, that's just that seems surprising me right there. That's a real thing. Yeah, it's a real thing, 100%. And that's why I think it's going to be important um, to get through this week and then, uh, you know, to, uh, to take my, uh, you know, my isolation retreat and just to be able to contemplate all things uh, my future and then uh, and then make a decision that I feel like is is best for me moving forward and in the highest interest of my happiness and then uh, and then move forward what's isolation retreat we're just going into a cave are you not going to talk you're not going to speak one of those things yeah is it just you in Ooh. there and if you're just in there alone do you know how many days you're in there are you taking an iPad a book are we able to reach you what? Is there it's uh, it's four nights of uh, complete uh, darkness what are you locked in where is it? You're not locked in. No, you can you can leave if you if you you know you can't do it. You can just walk out the door. But it's uh, it's a darkness retreat. Wow. And I've had you know a number of friends who've done it and had some profound uh, experiences. And it's something that's been on my radar for a few years now. And I felt like it'd be awesome to do regardless of where I was leaning after this season. So it's been on the calendar for uh, months and months and months. And it's coming up uh, in a couple weeks. So you walk into a room for four days, or is it a cave? Where so is it's, a, it's a room. It's a little house, yeah. 
and they just kind of black out the window. Brrr, everything's dropped down. And then there's somebody like in there administering like sounds and what we're going through, options. Of there's, a, there's a two-way uh, mirror. No, like a like a little slot that they'll they'll drop in uh, some food for you, but it's uh, but it's it's uh, isolation and darkness. No, you know, no music, no nothing. Are they recording you and your actions? How many people are in there? Uh, just myself. Isolation. Oh, oh that's it'd be weird if you had some random stranger in a corner you couldn't see. <laughs> I thought it was a group. I thought it was like a group. We're trying was, to that's trying to battle it. trying to battle for the toilet in the darkness <laughs> with somebody. So you're. So they're the one. So is there a bathroom? Or you wearing a diaper? <laughs> I think you can. You can, wear, you can wear adult uh, diapers if you want, but there's actually a bathroom. There it is, Aaron Rodgers in a darkness retreat. I just I don't know about you, but I thought about Loudon Swain in, in Vision Quest, who said, you know, he was uh, going on a Vision Quest and going to drop to 168 pounds and wrestle shoot. So I don't know if Aaron Rodgers is going to come out of this thing and say that. Uh, uh, you know, we'll talk more about this in the four o'clock hour. Uh, I actually think there's some value in going to a place of quiet to contemplate and, you know, turn your phone off and get away from screens. And, but I don't know if you need four days of it. I don't know. You need to be weird about it, but we'll talk all about Aaron Rodgers and the weirdness going on there. I think it was hallucinogenic last time, last off season. Now it's, now it's the, you know, is he going in one of those water tanks and those flotation tanks? He's gonna he's gonna sit in there and get it, you know, get real with himself. I don't know. Four days. Does that sound like a delight? Uh maybe to some of you. I think four days is a little long. I think you get tired of yourself after four days in an isolation or a darkness retreat. But we'll see what it does to Aaron Rodgers in his psyche. Uh coming up, we will talk to Dave Wilcox who uh, is not a guy going on a darkness retreat. No, he is just uh, a kid from Eastern Oregon who grew up, went to uh, Boise State, was then a community college, then went to the University of Oregon, following in the footsteps of his older brother, Johnny Wilcox, who uh, uh, played for Len Casanova and went to a Rose Bowl. Dave Wilcox uh, went on to make the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, it's interesting to me to look at Mel Renfro. Dave Wilcox, two Hall of Famers in the same college football program. Uh, Bob Lilly was from Eastern Oregon. People, a lot of people don't know that. Went on to uh, make the Hall of Fame and play for the Dallas Cowboys. But we'll talk to Dave Wilcox about the Super Bowl. Uh, we'll talk about his kids. But i got to ask him about Justin Herbert as a little kid. He was around the Wilcox family. Did Dave Wilcox see greatness in Justin Herbert when he was five or seven or nine years old? I'll ask him that. Leave it here. Dave Wilcox next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Super Bowl coming up on Sunday. Uh, always a good time to catch up with a pro football Hall of Famer. And Dave Wilcox... Uh, Oregon fans will remember him from his time at Oregon. They may remember his brother, Johnny Wilcox. Of course, they remember his sons, Josh and Justin. The Wilcox family and the University of Oregon have uh, have uh, had a long, deep relationship. Dave is joining us now. Thanks for making time, Dave. I appreciate you. Oh, it's great to do this. Uh, we Actually, we're on vacation down in Arizona, 
and um, looking forward to get back to Junction City. I know that. <laughs> Let me ask you, you know, I mentioned Johnny, your older brother, going to Oregon. Yeah. I, I know he played in the Rose Bowl in 57. <laughs> you know, everybody always talks about you and, and your sons at Oregon. But, you know, if Johnny if Johnny doesn't go to Oregon, does Dave Wilcox go to Oregon? Or how did that work? Well, I'll tell you what John's uh, deal was. He graduated from high school went to Oregon for one term, decided that wasn't what he wanted to do, and uh, Boise Junior College had re- recruited him. So he went back to, he went to Boise JC for, uh, was it a, a year and a half or something, and then transferred back to University of Oregon. And, um, oh, he loved it. Uh, you know, and we had a, a, a guy named Lynn Casanova as our coach, and, I mean, what a, you couldn't ask for a better man. The, the the joy of kids compete and follow in your footsteps. You get Justin, you get Josh. What was that like for you and your family? Oh, actually, I thought it was fun because I used to listen to them bitch and moan and complain. <laughs> and and I told them I'd already been there. So, you know, if you got a problem, don't, don't come to me. <laughs> Anyhow, no, that was wonderful, and we were lucky to be able to uh, to have that happen um i i know that josh and justin both you know uh had opportunities other places and it just worked out best for them you're doing some work with the gridiron greats assistance fund uh teaming up uh for, for pork rind appreciation day always goes well with the super bowl what why is the gridiron greats organization important to you well, there's a lot of guys that played, uh, well, actually when I did and since then and all that, have some problems that uh, are not being taken care of uh, the way we, we would like. Uh, of course, that's probably true of everybody. But uh, anyhow, it's a fundraising thing. And I tell you what, uh, Mike Ditka is the one that kind of got this thing going, and you know, Mike uh, is a wonderful man. Uh, the many, many things that he has put together and and is involved in is helping uh, the older players, uh, guys that uh, played uh, years ago, and it's just uh, it makes you feel good. To, to help somebody that has uh, had some problems. Yeah, and I think, you know, people think of the money that's in football today. It wasn't always that way. And, and in your era, you know, you were a guy who played every game. I think you only missed one game in your career due to injury. How did you stay healthy, by the way? Uh, actually, I uh, was a defensive back, or a linebacker, and I, had, I played next to Tommy Hart, who was our defensive end. And a guy named Charlie Kruger is a defensive tackle. And uh, I told him on all run plays, they were to knock everybody down and uh, just not, not let them hit myself. Or uh, there was a guy named Jimmy Johnson who was a yep. defensive back on my side. And Jimmy took care of the passes. So I was just kind of out there hoping uh, to do something once in a while. <laughs> I, I love that. Yeah, you did something. You made the Hall of Fame. And, and a, whole bunch, a whole bunch of Pro Bowls, seven times in the Pro Bowl. Uh, Dave Wilcox is with us. Did you, like, as you're playing, did you think Hall of Fame at any point, or is that something you think about long after you retired? 
Oh, I I know that we we played in a Hall of Fame game one, you know, when I my first or second year exhibition game, and you go through that whole thing and you look at that and say, oh my God, wouldn't that be something if we got here? Uh, and uh, you know, as a as a player, I don't think you never really think about it. Uh, in today's world, I know they talk a little more about things like that, but. Back in my day, we we were just busy to hopefully play the game and uh, don't get run over and stomped on too much. You were an Eastern Oregon kid, Vail High School, 1960, class of 60. And, you know, I've talked to uh, Eastern Oregon kids kind of about growing up on ranches or growing up rural. How did that help you? How did that help you as a football player? Well, let's see. When uh, we... When I went to grade school, uh, was uh, only two miles. We lived uh, ten miles out of Vale, and on the farm. And a grade school, we rode the bus, and it was uh, I think it was eight grades with two uh, classes uh, in each room. And then once you got through the eighth grade, you went to Vale High School, and that was kind of like uh, you know moving to big time. And, uh, of course, uh, Vail had always been good in football, and we kind of grew up that. I had older brothers that played that. And my just John, my older brother, played with the Eagles and with Oregon. I played at Boise Junior College. But, you know, and uh, we, uh, I, for some reason, our, our football program, I think we lost two games in my four years in high school. Uh, and we won the state championship two or three times and whatever else. But it was just uh, the way it was, and uh, the, the support you got from the community was just unreal. Uh, and I think it was because uh, after football practice, you'd have to hurry home to milk the cows and suck the hay. <laughs> so, it was a little different than uh, growing up in uh, Boise or uh, – even Ontario, Oregon, for Granny's sake. Dave Wilcox is our guest, uh, two-way player at Oregon. You had Mel Renfro on that team. And, you know, did you, were you did you look around and go, hey, we're pretty good. We might have two Hall of Famers here. And, and Bob Lilly was an Eastern Oregon kid for a while as well. And and I, I, look, I think about that region, the state of Oregon, and that time, it was phenomenal. Well, uh, I know that uh, Mel Renfro went to Jefferson High School in Portland him and a guy named Terry Baker who won the Heisman. And uh, anyhow, um, and then uh, Jefferson, I forget the exact records, but Jefferson High School had won like uh, three or four years in a row without losing a game. And we were the next class behind uh, Jefferson and Vail, and we kind of did the same thing. So we kind of followed each other, I guess. and then um, Mel uh, decided to go to the University of Oregon, and he was also a track guy. Uh, he ran the hurdles, and and I think it was the two hundred or the hundred, or relays or stuff. But uh, I got to play uh, on the same football team with Mel, and uh, I tell you what, that was something. He was an unbelievable athlete, and uh, real feel real lucky to be able to play with him.
Yeah, he ends uh, up he ends up as a defensive back. You were uh, offensive guard in an end in college and outside linebacker in the NFL. Did did you miss being on offense, or did you, did you always love playing defense more? Actually, when I went to from high school, I went to Boise, and uh, at at in high school we played everything. And then and junior college did the same thing. And when I went to Oregon, they said, oh, we're going to make you a guard. And I thought, oh, my God, what, what do guards do? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, I said, well, okay, but i got to play some kind of defense, too. And so it worked out. But, yeah, we had some great athletes and, you know, playing the, both ways. And actually, when I was in junior college and high school, uh, we ran down on kickoffs and punts, and we did everything. Uh, mainly, I guess, because we didn't have a lot of guys or something. I don't know. But it was uh, a great experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything, and I'm glad uh, our, our two sons went to Junction City High School, which is a smaller high school. But, you know, it was just an opportunity to experience some things that you couldn't do in the rest of life. And, and the people you meet and the, the the opportunities you have. Justin Herbert now with the Chargers. You know, I, I have to think he was running around at family barbecues as a little kid. I've heard Justin and Josh talk about that. What do you remember of Herbert as a kid? <laughs> I remember when he was a little kid and, and he used to look down, and now you have to look up to see him, <laughs> look him in the eyes. Oh, he was a, a, a great young man, and well, he still is. And uh, I mean, it's really uh, we love watching him play. And the, I gave him some, some advice once he started playing, and told him that you know I really liked the way he played and stuff. But if he ever got hurt, I was going to be mad at him. So don't get hurt. And, He's done a pretty good job of that, I guess. Yeah, don't you look? Think about the game today. It, it's violent. Those are big physical players. You look at the size oh, and the speed. What do you make of that? How do you keep this game sting football, but also protect players? Oh, it is. I mean, the size of the guys and the speed and the quickness and uh, and the way the game's played. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, I I don't know how you. You know, you'd probably have to go to some kind of touch or flag or something. I don't, I don't know, uh, but it is uh, the, the guys you we go to a, a reunion or something once in a while. And you look at the modern guys and say, "Oh my God, how did we ever play?" <laughs> yeah, and I think about sacks too, because you know you're seeing you know the defensive lineman can barely grab the quarterback but at the same time you know the quarter you, you get you see the Niners lose all their quarterbacks and you go okay you understand why the league protects them it was you know oh. did they let you back in your day I mean you could you could tackle still oh yeah uh-huh oh yeah you could I think once the quarterback got out of the pocket or something you weren't supposed to hit him above the shoulders or something and I think the first time we heard that, we were playing the Minnesota Vikings, and Joe Cap had ran some kind of a rollout or something. And one of our guys hit him on the side of the head and kind of put him out for a while. <laughs> 
And uh, I don't think they, that we were supposed to do that. <laughs> 1970, yeah. You talk about, you guys played the Vikings in 1970 in the playoffs. I, you know, I was just looking at that game, and Bud oh, Grant yeah. was there. Very physical yeah. game. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, they were great, great players. I mean, they had Carl Eller and Jim Marshall, the defensive guys, and, you know, and Tarkington, and, oh, I can't think of all the guys. Uh, yeah, they they were a heck of a team, and I guy named Bob Berry, yeah. um, who was a quarterback at Oregon when we were. He played there, and then he went on and played in Atlanta. So, yeah, it was a, a great experience. And, you know, we see some old guys once in a while talk about things, and I'm not sure if the things are accurate as they were supposed to be. But. Anyhow, it's fun. Yeah, well, those stories always grow. It's like a fish story, right? You know. <laughs> so, oh yeah, exactly. Hey, who do you remember? So, who do you remember as being a hard hitter that era? You know, you were a guy on defense, but um, you know, is there a sack that you remember? Is there an interception that you remember that you know maybe uh, it just brings a smile to your face? Oh well, I mean, you know, that's when Butkus played. <laughs> And uh, I can't think of his name right now. The uh, Lawrence Taylor played with the. He was a little later. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, Deacon Jones and uh, all all of the defensive guys were. Yeah, they always hung out together. When you go to the Pro Bowl, uh, you'd hang out with the defensive guys because you didn't like the offensive guys because they tried to score points. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't want that to happen. So anyhow, uh, just, you know, the the players and the type of guys they were, that, that was the whole thing. And I remember we have uh, guys would be late for curfew and stuff, and they would get fine money. And uh, I remember uh, there, there was a couple of guys that, uh, that happened quite frequently with them. And we we got to, as a player of the team got to decide what to do with the money, and we always had pizza and beer in the locker room after the game. I love that. <laughs> so that was we we had to hurry up and win the game so we could get our pizza and uh, <laughs> and beer or something. I guess I don't know. I, I'm not quite sure if how accurate that was, but it was fun and. Uh, and the people, you know, everybody was there for the players, especially. Uh, you know, everybody was doing their best, whatever that was. The University of Oregon has changed over the years. And, you know, this last cycle when Justin, who's doing a great job at Cal and has been successful there, had, had an opportunity to go to Oregon. Did you give him any advice there? Is it tougher to go home? Is it tougher to coach the team that, you know, you grew up watching so closely? Growing up, you know, I mean, they grew up close to the university. They were ball boys, him and Josh both, and uh, got to, you know, kind of grow up in the whole thing and then were very fortunate to get a scholarship to go on and be able to play. How much fun are you having now? You're 80 years old, get a chance to see your kid coaching at Cal, and, you know, you must be awfully proud. Oh, yeah. Like I said, you know, we – when uh, I have a lot of opinions, but I keep them to myself because he would tell me to do something with them, I'm sure. 
because it's always easier from the outside, you know, until you get you know, in right in the middle of the huddle. You're going, well, why don't they do this? Why didn't the guy run over there? Why didn't he tackle him? You know, I don't know. Anyhow, that's uh, uh, kind of the way it is. Who do you like in the Super Bowl? Oh, gosh. You <laughs> have a pick? That yeah, you got a pick. <laughs> Chiefs, Eagles, who do you like? I Actually, I kind of like the Eagles because my brother John played there for one year. And I gotta gotta kind of say, well, I I hope uh, hope they win so you can remember when you played. Of course, that's a lot of years ago. But Worse. anyhow, I I don't know. Dave Wilcox, our guest. Go to gridirongreats.org if you would like to learn more about the Gridiron Greats Assistant Fund. Uh, Dave, I appreciate you. Congrats uh, on everything that you have accomplished, and uh, we will talk uh, to you down the road. All right. Talk to you later. Talk to you soon. There he is, former University of Oregon great, Pro Football Hall of Famer, Dave Wilcox. I want you to leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. It's the one thing that you need to know today. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Dave Wilcox as much as I did. Love catching up with him. Uh, we've had him on the show over the years. Uh, coming up in the 4 o'clock hour, we'll play some Punch It Audio. Anna will pop by. We have the 5 at 5, obviously, in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll talk some Trailblazers and trade deadline with Sean Hyken uh, at 5.15. Want you here for that every day. Right here in this segment, though, we give you the big splash. The one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. Must be the Big Splash. The LIV Golf League is preparing to start its second season. They'll start in Mexico later this month. Remember, it's financed by Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund. Uh, according to federal court documents, though, a story out today, LIV Golf generated virtually no revenue in 2022. The attorneys for LIV Golf are arguing that uh, they spent $784 million in promoting and, uh, you know, uh, associating themselves with golfers, but uh, really didn't make any money. Uh, the ultimate aim, I think, of the LIV Golf Tour really isn't to make money. It's to connect itself, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, with professional sports. We call it the sportification of things. Well, LIV Golf is wrapped up with the PGA Tour in a lawsuit, but uh, on Monday, that's today, PGA Tour's attorneys uh, uh, were talking in court, and the LIV attorneys indicated that, hey, they spent $784 million in the first season. That includes salaries for employees, build-outs at golf courses, production costs for the event, social media, its website, all of that stuff. But they didn't make any money last year. Keep in mind, they're paying $200 million to Phil Mickelson, $150 million to Dustin Johnson, uh, $125 million to Bryson DeChambeau, and $100 million for Cameron Smith, the reigning U.S. Open championship winner. Uh, the LAV Golf has declined to provide details of the contracts, but it's more and more evident that their aim 
is not really to make money, at least initially. They're just trying to get market share. They're trying to normalize Saudi money being involved in sports. Uh, the second golf season will tee off February 24th in Mexico. 54-hole tournaments, 12-man teams, uh, or excuse me, 12 four-man teams, team competition, individual competition. They're going to have 14 tournaments this season. None of those tournaments will be held in the state of Oregon, Pumpkin Ridge, which uh, rankled members last year by shutting down the course and hosting that inaugural event on American soil. Not going to revisit uh, a second event with LIV Golf. Uh, they're moving on to another golf course uh, that is owned by the same company that owns Pumpkin Ridge, Escalante Golf. So uh, keep in mind that uh, this is not going away. It's just the PGA Tour continuing to be in a battle with LIV Golf over protecting its assets, protecting its sponsors, while the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund tries to normalize its involvement in sports. That's the one thing you need to know. Uh, coming up, top of the hour, we'll play some Punch It audio. we got great sound today. You already heard me play the wonky Aaron Rodgers cut uh, with Rodgers talking about going into, uh, you know, uh, going into a uh, darkness retreat. I don't know. Maybe some of you out there want a darkness retreat. Who else needs one? Uh, we'll talk about that. But Tom Brady uh, speaking out on his relationship with Bill Belichick. Uh, J.J. Reddick talking about LeBron. Jim Beheim on the NIL world, because he's living in it. All of that coming up as part of Punch It Audio. Plus, I'm going to give you my thoughts and opinions on all those subjects. Uh, all of that still ahead as we uh, are here on a great Tuesday giving you the Bald Face Truth radio show. And, and, and if I haven't said it lately, I appreciate that you're out there, that you're listening. Saw a whole bunch of you on our remote broadcast at Spirit Mountain last week. And uh, I said, you know, it's nice to see people because sometimes you get a little uh, isolated in the studio. I love when you call in. I love when you fist bump me and say hello. So uh, keep doing that. All right, 4 o'clock hours ahead. we got so much to talk about, and I'm fired up for it. Leave it right here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. I have a lot of fun on this radio show. I hope you have as much fun listening to it. We got a great hour here. Anna will pop in. I just talked to her in the uh, commercial break. She's all fired up about the five at five. I said, don't tell me. Don't tell me the stories that you're picking. Because she was like, oh, have you seen or can you believe? And I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to hear it. I want to hear it. I want to hear it live. In person on this show at 5 o'clock. The 5 at 5. Uh, every day in the 4 o'clock hour, we play Punch It Audio. We've got great sound today, great cuts. Is Kevin Durant on the move? Adrian Wojnarowski says no. You'll hear why Woj thinks that's going to uh, Durant will stay in Brooklyn. Patrick Mahomes. Super Bowl in front of us. Just days away from Super Bowl Sunday. What's the biggest factor in the Super Bowl? What's the, what's the one thing? Like, I always ask coaches. After the game, basketball coaches or football coaches, they'll often walk into the postgame news conference, and they're carrying, like, the stat sheet. And I'm always curious... 
when a coach is handed the stat sheet where their eyes go first. Bobby Knight, uh, the Indiana University basketball coach, I asked him that, and he said he goes to free throws. It's the first thing he looks at. He wants to know if his team made more free throws than the other team shot. Think about that. That's a battle that he always said he privately noted in his mind. I said, where do your eyes go when you get the stat sheet? He says, I go to free throws because I want to see, like, you know, if his team shot 18 free throws and made 15, and the other team only shot 14 free throws, that's a win because the other team cannot match you in that category. So he's always looking at that. Do we get to the line and make our shots versus are we putting them on the line? And some of that has to do with officiating. But that's what Knight said. Jerry Tarkanian was different. His eyes went to turnovers. He wanted to know, are, did the other team turn the ball over more than we did? And I always think that's interesting. Where do your eyes go? Like, Stephen, on a stat sheet post-game, where would your eyes gravitate? For basketball, it's uh, three-pointers made. I think that's the most important thing right now in the NBA. For the NFL, it's always yards per play. I'm always intrigued to see how many yards per play teams are actually getting because I think the scores can be a little misleading. Yeah, I always look at first downs, and I look at number of plays run for football. You know, Because a lot of times you'll see a team that's dominating – you know, you, you, you know, you'll obviously see the score, but you'll see the plays run. Hey, they've run 25 more plays than the other team in the game. Like, you've had the ball. You've made first downs. You, the other team doesn't have the ball. They can't score. And so I always look at that. But uh, I am always curious with the Super Bowl where your eyes will go. We'll talk about that coming up. But before that, let's give them the sound. Tom Brady, J.J. Redick, Jim Beheim, Woj, we got so much today. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with Tom Brady. Why not? Bill Belichick. Tom Brady. Why is the media always trying to divide Brady and Belichick? Coach Belichick was on the Let's Go podcast with Tom Brady. Let's listen in. Punch it. In my view, it was just people always trying to pull us apart. And I don't think we ever even felt that with each other. We never were trying to pull each other apart. We actually were always trying to go in the same direction. And I think when we were in New England for 20 years together, you know, it's tired. They get tired of writing the same story. So, you know, once they write all the nice things and championships and this, and then they just start going, well, this works. Let's start trying to divide them. I never really appreciated those, you know, ways that people would try to do that. He and I always had a great relationship, and we met all the time. And did we always see everything exactly the same way? Who does in life? You know, what close relationship can you have where everything goes, you know, like a bright, sunny day? No, there are moments that, you know, it was never intolerable i mean but it was always just i would say healthy debates about certain things and we always talked about him face to face and i think there's one thing i appreciate about coach belichick in life is he's not afraid to have a hard conversation too well look i mean i mean to me this is a little bit like you're tom brady you're winning six super bowls in new england with bill belichick okay you made winning super bowls almost 
you know, I don't, I don't want to say you made it boring, but you made it routine. So I don't think you could sit back and go, you know, why was there so much scrutiny? Why was there so much interest? Why were people always asking, is it Belichick or is it Brady? I don't necessarily think people are trying to divide them, but people are asking questions, and that comes with success. You're Tom Brady. You're in the fishbowl. You're Bill Belichick. You're in the fishbowl when you're playing at that level. I think it's interesting to hear him talk about the fact that, you know, it wasn't always rosy. Of course, like I don't think anybody expects any relationship, any friendship, any employee, coach, pupil, any relationship at all with your significant other to, to not have moments where you're not on the same page. I mean, it's unrealistic. I don't think anybody was trying to debate, divide these guys. I think we were trying to understand where does Belichick end and Brady begin? And I think it's a fair question. I always kind of shake my head when I hear athletes kind of talking in this way. It's almost like, you know, Tom Brady, you made several hundred million dollars in salary, several hundred million dollars endorsement. You were in the Super Bowl. You were, uh, you know, beloved by so many fans. Is it okay if some people ask some questions about you know, some hard questions even about what was going on at that time. And I think, frankly, when you see a player of Brady's caliber, and I like Brady, with a coach of Belichick's caliber, and I like Belichick, you kind of wonder, like, how did that work? Why did it work? Because so often we see high-profile players not get along with their coaches, including Michael Jordan, who came into the league and didn't really win until Phil Jackson got in charge in Chicago. Well, why? The same questions for MJ. But I don't think he's bellyaching about people trying to divide he and Phil Jackson. I think people are just trying to understand greatness. It's why, Tom, TB12, it's why people want to buy your underpants and buy your book and while Fox is giving you several hundred million dollars to talk football. And the thing is, is... Belichick wasn't great as the Browns head coach, and Brady was a sixth-round pick, so we wanted to know how that worked. Like, it wasn't that we were trying to divide them. We wanted to know what the secret formula was because this is two guys that we weren't expecting to go on this dynasty that went on a dynasty. Yeah, and so many people are trying to emulate it. Like, it, it comes up every year in the offseason in football. Like, the Houston Texans hire D'Amico Ryans. Why? Not just because he played for the Texans, but because he was with the 49ers and they had a lot of success. So let's get some of that success. We're going to hire that guy. It happens every hiring cycle. It's why, you know, Arizona State wanted Kenny Dillingham from Oregon. They were like, he knows what Oregon's doing. Bring him in here. We think he could be successful. It, it, you know, it, it's evident all the time. Like, everything in sports is a sociology experiment. We're all trying to figure out why it works or why it doesn't work or what went wrong or will Kyrie Irving be able to exist in Dallas in a way that he didn't exist in Brooklyn and you know, what's the chemistry? What's the fit? And and you're right about Belichick. He got fired, Cleveland. The Jets didn't want him. It's, you know, he eventually got out of there, and he found great success alongside Brady. And the question we always had in the wake of those Super Bowls, hell, we were on air for most of them. Uh, you know, the question was always, is it Belichick or Brady? And the, the answer is, it's both. And, and it's the same in Tampa. Brady was lucky in Tampa to go to a situation where Bruce Arians, a veteran coach, understood that Brady was the piece that could put them over the top. I mean, I just think it's it's a wonderful 
experiment to observe, especially for franchises that are struggling, trying to figure out how do we do that. So Brady, come on, it's not people trying to divide you, people trying to understand you. J.J. Reddick talking about LeBron, how great he is. J.J. says it's not just about LeBron staying healthy and playing for a long time. He thinks LeBron's really good. Punch it. LeBron James, we can talk about his longevity, and that's part of the reason he's breaking this record. He's got the fifth highest career scoring average all time in the NBA. Jordan is first, 30.1. Wilt just behind him, 30.07. The next three, Elgin Baylor, Kevin Durant, LeBron James. LeBron is .06 points per, behind Kevin Durant and .14 points behind Elgin Baylor. So he's essentially one of the three greatest all-time scorers by scoring average. By scoring average. Yep. It's not a, just a longevity thing. Yeah, and, and he's right. You have to have both those things, though, to become the all-time greatest scoring you know, champion in, in any league. Um, it's interesting. I was looking at the number of points that he has totaled with the Lakers. 19% of his career point total has been scored with the Lakers. Here's a question, just a quick answer from Peter and Steven, and maybe think about this yourself if you're listening. What uniform is LeBron James going to be in, so to speak, when he goes into the Basketball Hall of Fame? Uh, is he is he wearing Miami? Is he wearing Cleveland? Is he wearing a Lakers uniform? Yeah, I think he'll be wearing a Cavaliers uniform. He's he's from Ohio. He's played for him twice. I think Cleveland. I think it's got to be Cleveland. Getting the championship was very important to him in Cleveland. I think it's got to be the Cavs. I hope so. I, that would be right, especially with 19% of his point total only with the Lakers, but 21% with the Miami Heat and 60% with Cleveland. It just depends on what team Bronny's on. That's what team will go in as. It hurt, though. I think it hurt Blazer fans when Clyde Drexler went with a Rockets theme. You know, do you think Clyde was wrong to do that? Yes. I mean, he could do whatever he wants, I guess. Technically, there is no right or wrong. But he was wrong. Absolutely. I mean, but we're so we're so much about championship culture. And, like, he got his championship there. So, like, yeah, I'm with you, Peter. Like, he can do whatever he wants. He's probably wrong, though. Yeah, I, I, I think, though, he was speaking to hometown, Vice Slamma Jamma. Probably some of that in play with Clyde. And I think it's part of why he, he's not, you know, he doesn't ingratiate himself to people in Portland. Jim Beheim. Syracuse coach is pissed off. He's mad at Wake Forest. He's mad at Pitt. He's mad at my Miami. He thinks they're buying players. Guess what? They are. Here's Beheim. Punch it. Well, I think it's the portal and the and the NIL have had a huge impact. You're able to uh, uh, get players right away through the transfer portal. I think all the NILs that I know of, what I know of, are legal and within the rules completely, 100%. And it's, uh, you know, the way college basketball is going. Uh, I was just talking about that as I was walking from my press conference, after the press conference, to my locker room. And, uh, you know, that was, you know, it's uh, changed college basketball. You can turn around a team uh, overnight or you can retain players. And all that is part of the landscape of college basketball. Look, this is a guy who is a hero in the eyes of Syracuse fans. 
He has paved the way. He's been in one place for 47 years. Uh, he needs no introduction. 20 twi trips to the Sweet 16, five Final Fours, national championship in 2003. I was there. Carmelo Anthony, Syracuse. It's interesting to kind of watch this guy age, and a lot of coaches. He's 78 now. You know, you might remember earlier in the season, he walked out of that news conference with a student reporter asking him, you know, why can't your team win on the road? He's frustrated. The game is changing on him at age 78. Think about, like, the questions your parents have asked you in the last couple of years. If you were lucky enough to have your parents around or grandparents. The world is shifting. You know, they're trying to figure out wireless printers, you know, and streaming services. And Jim Beheim's going, hey, they, I used to get beat by people who would pay players under the table. Now, as far as I know, this is all legal, but they're buying players everywhere. It's got to be awfully confusing and tough for him. And we're watching coaches like David Shaw at Stanford, Mike Krzyzewski at Duke, who are just going, eh. David Shaw could have coached longer. College athletics lost something when David Shaw decided to hang it up. But I get why. It's the same reason that Jim Beheim's having an issue with, you know, the effect of name image likeness. He's mad at Wake Forest, Pitt, and Miami in particular because he didn't used to have to deal with them. Now he does. The Brooklyn Nets, are they trading Kevin Durant or not? I said yesterday, I didn't necessarily think Durant would be on the move. Is it possible that Brooklyn's just going to rebuild around him? Are they posturing for the trade deadline now? Uh, Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN, punches. As teams canvas Brooklyn, and I think there's been no shortage of calls to the Nets about whether they would have interest in engaging on Kevin Durant uh, that they've been told so far uh, we have no intention of trading Durant. I think Durant has been told that by the organization, but listen, they went through this together last summer uh, when Kevin Durant had uh, questions, issues, concerns about uh, the Nets' ability to, to, to put together a championship contender. Look, Kevin Durant can't be happy He's going to miss the All-Star game, by the way, due to a knee injury. So he's not going to have to, uh, not going to have to answer questions. But he's not happy in the wake of this. He can't be. The the Nets are not better. But I also think this could just be Brooklyn trying to maintain Kevin Durant's trade value. The last thing they want to do, if they really are going to move him, is talking about is to go public with the idea that they have to move him. Doesn't make any sense. I still think. You know, he's a different player than Kyrie Irving. You've got him under contract for now. I still think if Brooklyn's serious about winning, they have to consider first the option of Kevin Durant being part of their roster. But let's see what happens between now and Thursday's trade deadline. Brady Quinn talking about the uh, Super Bowl. Chiefs playing against the Eagles. He says it reminds him of the Buccaneers against the Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Here's Brady Quinn. Punch it. You know what this game feels like? This game feels similar to, and I know the dynamics are different on offense for the Chiefs, where their offensive line was banged up when they faced Tampa. But you saw Patrick Mahomes running around for his, his life. And the Chiefs are much improved on their offensive line in this matchup. But Mahomes is still hampered with the ankle. I don't know how close he'll be to 100%. You know, he moved around pretty well despite that in the AFC Championship game. But that's my concern is you've got a group, uh, a defensive front 
that I don't think you can you can't give too much help to to one side or another. And I think they match up pretty well to in the secondary. So that affords Jonathan Gannon the opportunity to either get pressure with four or bring pressure from time to time. And that's where if Mahomes isn't as mobile, he could be getting a, a lot of hits on him with that with that front. I just think they're that dominant the way they they play this year. Yeah, they certainly gave the Niners some trouble, obviously knocking Brock Purdy out of the game and it was the Eagles' front seven, and in particular their pass rush, that was problematic. But I think Patrick Mahomes, with the extra rest, I'd be curious to see how that ankle is doing. Uh, of course, they're not going to be talking about it. It will be a big story in this Super Bowl. You know, I talked about looking at the box, the, the box score, that maybe the bigger indicator for this game is going to be just Patrick Mahomes in pregame warm-ups. Is he moving around? Does, does he look mobile? Does the ankle look okay? Uh, again, high ankle sprain. And he looked good enough in the win over the Bengals. Does the extra week, the week off that he's getting this weekend, does it give Patrick Mahomes enough to get him healthy enough to be a problem in this game? That may be the biggest factor when it comes to the Super Bowl. Mahomes' ability to evade uh, particularly Philadelphia's pass rush. Because that's where he kills people. He gets out of the pocket and he runs for 20 yards after you've uh, broken down the offensive line. Or he escapes and he uh, launches himself sideways and throws the ball 40 yards downfield. That's Patrick Mahomes. That's his game. Anna's popping into the studio next. you got the BFT statewide. I want you to leave it right here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. So Aaron Rodgers is going on a darkness retreat. Anna has popped into the studio. Uh, before I play this clip again, Anna, and I played it earlier in the show, I want you to tell me, like, does the idea of a darkness retreat... Absolutely. <laughs> well, there you have your answer. Uh, here's Aaron Rodgers talking on the Pat McAfee show about going on... A darkness retreat, kind of what happens with all that, whatnot. Yeah, it's a real thing, 100%. And that's why I think it's going to be important um, to get through this week, and then uh, you know, to uh, to take my uh, you know my isolation retreat, and just to be able to contemplate all things uh, my future, and then uh, and then make a decision that I feel like is is best for me moving forward, and in the highest interest of my happiness, and then uh, and then move forward. What's isolation retreat? We're just going into a cave. Are you not going to talk? You're not going to speak? One of those things? Yeah. Is it just you in there? Ooh. And if you're just in there alone, do you know how many days you're in there? Are you taking an iPad, a book? Are we able to reach you? What? Is there good it's uh, it's four nights of uh, complete uh, darkness. What? Are you locked in? Where is it? You're not locked in. No, you can you can leave if you if you you know you can't do it. You can just walk out the door. But it's uh, it's a darkness retreat. And I've had, you know, a number of friends who've done it and had some profound uh, experiences. And it's something that's been on my radar for a few years now. And I felt like it'd be awesome to do regardless of where I was leaning after this season. So it's been on the calendar for uh, months and months and months. And it's coming up uh, in a couple weeks. So you walk into a room for four days. Or is it a cave? Where it's, is... it's, a, it's a room. It's a little house, yeah. And they just kind of black out the window, brrr, everything's dropped down. And then there's somebody like in there administering like sounds and what we're going through, options. Of there's, a, there's a two-way uh, mirror. 
No, like a like a little slot that they'll they'll drop in uh, some food for you, but it's uh, but it's it's uh, isolation and darkness. No, you know, no music, no nothing. Are they recording you and your actions? How many people are in there? Uh, just myself. Isolation. Oh, oh that's, it'd be weird if you had some random stranger in a corner you couldn't see. <laughs> I thought it was a group. I thought it was like a group. We're trying to, that's, that's trying, to battle, trying to battle for the toilet in the darkness with somebody. So you're, so they're the one. So is there a bathroom or you wearing a diaper? I think you can. You for can real? wear. You can wear adult uh, diapers if you want, but there's actually a bathroom. All right, Aaron Rodgers talking about a darkness retreat. Uh, as I, as I look at this, there's um, Tibetan. Uh, ritual. There is, uh, you know, spiritual retreats. Absent of light. This is uh, billed as an unparalleled experience of intense seclusion. Reminds me of those flotation tank stories that you've talked about, Anna. Like your friends are going like to tanks and stuff and getting a break from the kids. Yeah, it's like <laughs> a sensory deprivation. That's that's the kind of cave that I want to crawl into. If you've ever been to a place like one of those trampoline parks or there's a place out in Beaverton called Defy, it's yeah. like a million kids, a million children or even just, you know, like uh, a run of a mill visit to an amusement park. Anything where there's like extreme noise like that. A darkness retreat is actually pretty appealing. I don't think four days is the right dosage, though. What do you think is the right dosage? I think like an hour. Just an hour? An hour would be cool. Yeah. Two hours. Like, he needs four days in Maybe the dark? Maybe you don't start hallucinating the answer to all your life's problems until like day three. It sounds like you kind of lose your mind after a couple of days. Yeah, but isn't, you know? that's, I think that's what No, he's... but like you go a little nutty. <laughs> like, I think there's a, all things in moderation, right? It shouldn't be all about alcohol. It shouldn't be all about anything. Like, you know, you got to have balance in your life. And Aaron Rodgers is going like, hey, I'm tired of being this weird guy that's everywhere. Now I'm going to be alone with myself. Let's see how much he likes himself when he gets in isolation. I got a theory here that Aaron Rodgers is going to be like, you know what? That guy I was with in isolation, I don't know about him. Do you think this is just all part of his brand? Because he has been very public about some of the alternate uh, meditation methods and healing methods that he has tried in the past. Could Do you be. think this is just a continuation of Aaron Rodgers and our entertainment of him in the off-season? Off I think maybe maybe he wants us all to think like he's this really down-to-earth, grounded, organic-eating, you know, greasy-haired, patchouli-oil quarterback who's got his inner zen all figured out. Maybe. Maybe. But is he benefiting financial financially from that no is he like uh is this good for it's different like tom brady had kind of the you know cryogenics feel mm -hmm. to me you know like he's got his tb program and all that and mm -hmm. you know anti-aging that's tom brady you yeah. know yeah aaron Rodgers is trying to be like you know hippie-ish you know i'm in a vw bus going into isolation mm -hmm. you know yeah. grooving out yeah you know where's woodstock i missed it yeah um, but it's the antithesis of everything that you would imagine in the traditional NFL quarterback, which is what makes it relatively interesting and is why we're sitting here talking about it. Why, by the way, you can do a seven-day edge-of-the-wilderness uh, dark retreat right here in Oregon.
Do I sound like I'm how much selling they, it? How much do they want for that? Because I could offer a retreat, the BFT darkness retreat. And yeah. Just, I'll slide some food through a slot in the door, too. <laughs> we'll convert this studio. It's a nice size studio. We can convert, we'll just take the lights out. For the bargain price of $1,350, you know, a shy deposit of $675, you can have a seven-day edge-of-the-wilderness darkness retreat in Ashland, Oregon. You can choose to do a dark retreat for as short as three to five days. Okay, but when they say darkness, I feel like I would need some light. Mm -hmm. Are they just saying you're in the dark? for like half the day and then you get to go get some sunlight like do you not get to go to the yard do you not get some sunshine in your life like i i would need that well psychologically. this description says typically most guests find that they sleep for the first 24 to 48 hours see that is very appealing to me <laughs> i have no problem with that yeah as the days unfold you need less and less sleep, and most eventually find that they don't sleep at all or are only sleeping one to two hours a night. Altered states of consciousness can naturally begin to rise as early as the fifth day. No. See? That's so, he's, so four, he's even... He's not doing it. He's not even getting there. He's not even scratching his inner darkness. Yeah, I'm looking at this website, too. I'm on the same one Anna is. This is, uh, this is some stuff right here. All right, look, I, I get, like, the flotation tanks that have, like, salt water. You go in, you float around for a while, they put on some, you know, cool music, you get away from everything, you come out refreshed and relaxed. I can understand the appeal to that. I can understand wanting to put your devices away, no screens. I don't think that I would do very well with a darkness retreat, though. I think my maximum time that I could do a darkness retreat is about 10 hours. Okay. I would sleep yeah. for about six or seven, <laughs> and then I would be bored. And I'd be like, this is ridiculous, you know. I dark. I have a darkness retreat every night when I go to sleep. <laughs> I wake up. I wake up refreshed. So I'm reading some of the, the uh, testimonials, and this one guy said that <laughs> you find – uh, you view your, your mind, like your brain opens up, and you think about things that you had completely forgotten about because your mm. eyes are, like, tranced on phones and everything we think about. So, like, it actually opens up your brain. I get that. I think you. I think that anybody who has gone, like, you know, we were on vacation, and I got away from my laptop and my phone, and you start to slow down, and you start to think, like, are the things that I have been focused on the most important things? Yeah. That's cool. Do that, but do it in moderation. Why do you have to be in pitch black but and Imagine immersed? doing that at like an exponential level. I don't, it doesn't appeal to me. The description says different neurochemical reactions occur from various glands and hormones being suppressed or stimulated from the light deprivation. I, I'm so thinking you about... can have heightened sensory sensitivities, visions, Lucid dreaming and profound and insightful experiences. You know what happens? You end up like Gollum in The Hobbit. <laughs> Precious. You end up crawling around on the ground, you know? It's too much. Why knock it until you've tried it? I'm not doing I'm not doing it. I have zero interest in going into a into a <laughs> scenario like that. Uh, Anna, you would be up for it? How many, uh, how many days? I'm now intrigued by it. Initially, when I read about this with Aaron Rodgers, I was like, oh, this is so wacky. And the more I read about it, the more I'm like, oh, this sounds kind of How nice. many days? How many days could I do? Yeah, before you'd go, okay, I want out. 
I got my. I have myself at about three, three days. Three days. It sounds like you just want a long nap. That's really what you want. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. What she's saying. Doesn't yeah. every mom just want yeah. a long nap? Like yeah. it's yeah. about the kids. Yeah. Um, a, the kids are going to listen to this podcast of this show one day <laughs> and be like, "Mom, really? Oh, uh, they know I love them." Uh, how many days could you go, Stephen, in in darkness like that? Uh, zero days. It would be minutes. I think maybe an hour. Like I, I would. I think I would go crazy. I would absolutely hate it. <laughs> Unless I they, fell asleep. Like if I fell asleep, I'd be okay. But like if I'm just yeah, sitting there in yeah. a dark room, I my brain would go wild. Why do we have to do this? That's my question. Like, isn't it enough? Could Aaron Rodgers just put his phone away and stop going on radio shows and just relax? He's free to go do this. Like, why do you need to be locked into a facility where they go? He's, hey, not, he's not locked. He he can loot. He can yeah, walk out at any time. He's in a room. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is what like I think sometimes weird. Attracts weird. Yeah. I think when he started talking about doing the cleanse and talking about, you know, all of his viewpoints on the world, these people found him and went, all right, we got a, we got a scenario for you. How about this? We're well, he did you. just speak at an astrological seminar yesterday, just yesterday. Yeah. So maybe this was something suggested. I don't think there. this is his brand. I think he's, I think he's kind of groovy. This is just who he is. I think he's groovy. Um, the dark retreat ends at sunrise after your last day. They ring a bell at sunrise so that you know it's time to bring your retreat to I'm a writing close. Writing these things down for Integration my... from the dark can be a really delicate process. Can we the do the B... radio show yeah. from the dark room? That's what I'm saying. The BFT Darkness Retreat Remote Broadcast. <laughs> think we... how clearly you would think on our betting for the Pac-12. Yeah, we would just be locked in, but we would also be completely out of touch with what's happening in the world. You know what should, we should do is when Aaron Rodgers goes into this thing, the rest of the world should play a, uh, should play a prank on him. <laughs> when he comes out, we say the NFL has been canceled. Huge lawsuit from players over player safety. The entire league is shut down. That's it. Mm -hmm. and, and everybody just insists it's over. Joke's on and him. See how long Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> hey, while you were in there. Your entire livelihood went away. Um, I, I don't know. Peter, how long could you last in this immersive experience? Oh, man, longer than any of you guys. I, I basically try to live my life in silence, in the dark as it is. In fact, I've known Stephen Vaughn, what, a year now? You've never seen me ever turn the lights on in either of these rooms one time. It is literally dark every time Peter's in the studio. <laughs> exactly. So, He's uh, a bit of a vampire. Little bit. Little <laughs> bit. So, uh, yeah, silence, putting the phone away, no music, no TV. I mean, you know, I enjoy music. I like that, but I can do without it. I often uh, sit in the dark, in the quiet, by myself so uh especially if i'm trying to prove a point like if i'm trying to show you john that i can do this for a week absolutely like i i've often like you know people will say they go to dinner and the first person to look at their phone has to pay for the bill like i kind of wonder who could last longer without their phone you know yeah anna you got that phone in your hand all the time uh-huh got it in your hand right now <laughs> yeah who on this show because i'm booking us a dark retreat yeah, could, and i'm not going I'll drop you off, or in fact, I will create a darkness retreat for you. For free. For free. In free our backyard. Free. It doesn't have to be in the backyard. No, we'll put you in the studio. Put a little cot in there. I'll slide some food through the door. It'll be pitch black. You know, when you start mumbling to yourself, I'll know it's time to open the door. It's ridiculous, this whole thing. Uh, 
And is he going into this retreat before the Super Bowl? Is he not going to know who won the Super Bowl? There's a whole bunch of pranks we could play on Aaron Rodgers while he's in there. People on Twitter are having a field day with it. They're saying that the crypto people uh-huh. convinced him oh. to do this. Yeah. Uh, that it gives us all hope that we all can one day hoax Aaron Rodgers because he's been had again. <laughs> like, I, does this, I don't know, does this make me want him to quarterback my team if I'm an NFL team? I don't think it does. I think it makes him look a little weird and different. And as we saw, look, the, you know, Sean Payton comes in to coach the Broncos, and what does he do? The, one of the first questions he's asked is about how he's going to handle Russell Wilson having his own coach, and he's going to be okay with that. Coaches, you know, they'll tolerate, uh, you know, abnormalities in players to a certain extent if they're really good. Dennis Rodman, Phil Jackson lets you go to Vegas. But I kind of think, like, at some point you want your leader – in your organization to not be groovy going, you know, I'm on a different plan than everyone else because he looks like a prima donna here. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit elitist. I don't I, I don't want him quarterbacking my team. Mm-hmm. Not from the darkness. You think Tom Brady sit, sat in a dark room ever? No. Tom Brady was game planning. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers is going to be sitting in a dark room while every team in the NFL, the rest of the quarterbacks this league, are going to be locked in, working out, throwing passes. I'm not. Uh, I'm not buying Aaron Rodgers. You don't know that Tom Brady might be in his underwear sitting in a dark room. <laughs> hey, somebody on Twitter told us that photo of him in the underwear that he posted yesterday was old. Like he did what? look phenomenally younger in that. I didn't shot. look at like, it, it very closely. You looked. Re- you looked really close, didn't you? <laughs> you. You were. Uh, you were geared up. I there. gave it my full inspection. Yeah, she studied go. it. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think we need to break here. Yes, yeah, Stephen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's break. We'll come back with more. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Anna, you're getting a lot of credit, a lot of uh, cred from uh, listeners who are impressed of your sports knowledge is growing. Oh. Yep, that's happening. I'm teachable. You are te- You're coachable. Uh <laughs> Moving on, though, we're a week away from Valentine's Day, so maybe you can help out the male listeners who are listening. Uh, Instead of roses, give her what? Uh, Remember the Simpsons once upon a time uh, said, give her English muffins instead of roses. Uh, But you tell me, instead of roses, what does every regular American woman want on valentine's day uh am i supposed to answer that question yeah you're supposed to be uniquely qualified to answer this question being that you are the only regular american woman listening or uh, speaking on the show (laughs) i don't know about regular um look I, i think anything anything is good like do something you know something is better than nothing uh it depends on the woman um, but you get bonus points for doing something that is sentimental. I think a lot of people fall into the trap of, well, let me spend a lot of money. Um, and that may not always be the way to somebody's heart. I don't think you can ever fully go wrong if you're at least making an effort to do something that is meaningful in terms of homemade, a call back to a memory that you shared, 
um, a, a card or a letter that you actually take some time to write, you know, more than like five minutes of scribbling in the bathroom before it's handed to you kind of thing. Uh, you know, like like that. Is that helpful? Yeah, uh, but like you say, give her anything like a piece of cheese or grilled salmon. Or are you saying give her something that, as you said, sentimentally like, says to her. What? I don't think there's anything wrong with being traditional, whether it's flowers, chocolates. That feels kind of lazy, though. It's kind of cliche. Uh, well, yes. But what I'm saying is that's better than just ignoring the holiday, right? How about waking up early and making breakfast? It depends. And, and a card. I mean, this invites a whole conversation about love language, right? The five love languages. and And if you really care knowing what it is that speaks to the person in your life like it doesn't have to just be you know men giving gifts to to women but it's understanding who you're with and understanding what actually matters to them is it quality time so that's the first question to answer what matters to her yeah so and, yeah. yeah what matters because what what you think matters may like totally be pointless like if your partner's love language is words of affirmation you getting up to make breakfast or doing the dishes or doing yeah. some kind of active service may be a waste of your time so i think it's interesting that you say that too because one time i had an engineer with me on a remote broadcast mm -hmm. okay ben yeah he um he said to me he was panicked and he said uh you know it's valentine's day tomorrow i uh i don't know what to get my girlfriend and I said, well, what are you thinking? He says, I'm thinking about sheets. And I said, no, <laughs> not sheets. And he said, I'm on a budget. Yeah. Okay? And he said, you know, I, I don't want to spend a whole bunch of money. I can't spend a whole bunch of money. It's not like I can go out to a fancy dinner. And I told him, you know, go to the store, buy a card, a blank card, print out a couple of photos on your phone that are sentimental to you, maybe get a cheap frame, put them in it, and write a, write a note to her. Mm -hmm. uh, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. On a sentimental level. Well, that could work. That yeah. could work. But I but think... But sheets, sheets a bad idea. It depends on the person. Yeah. I think sheets were terrible. Because for some people, it, for some people, a gift means a lot to them. And for somebody else, a gift doesn't mean much at all. So I think that's really the key is just to try to sit there and... And I don't think it hurts to ask. Hmm. Like, I don't think it hurts to ask whoever it is that you're with, like, hey... What are some of the more meaningful gifts that you've ever received in your life? Or what are the, you know, what would speak to you? What Best kind of gift you ever you? got was, and then pay attention. Yeah. Because she, I'm going to guess she doesn't say it's something that was expensive. It'll be something that was meaningful that the gift giver was basically announcing, hey, I get you, I know you. Yeah. All right. Steven, are you paying attention to this? <laughs> 100%. Yeah, I'm writing down everything. All right. All right. Write it all down. <laughs> Trying to help you out here. Uh, we're a week away. If you are going to dinner... You know, make a reservation. I always, uh, uh, I think the urban restaurant groups, restaurants, Mark and the team at all those restaurants like like Bricks Tavern and Bricks and uh, uh, Tualatin and other places uh, often do a nice job. Uh, shout out to Mark. He supports the BFT Foundation, so I always give him some love back. Uh, all right, coming up, uh, more ahead. We're going to skew away from the Valentine's Day. What have we talked about now? We've talked about isolation and darkness and light and love. Where do we go next? Find out. Stick around. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
There's nothing more frustrating than looking at an entity, a team, a business, a league, a conference, a school, some entity, looking at it and being able to see there's something wrong and knowing that the people involved in the entity uh, aren't going to do anything to fix it. Did I did I uh, explain that right? Yeah. You feel like I feel like you're talking about something very specific. How? <laughs> the Blazers. Um, politics. You know. In general. In general. <laughs> things like that. Um, look, we all know. Like you've ever been in a restaurant, you walk through the doors, and you've we've all walked into places where we walk in and almost immediately, you know, something's not right about the business. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about it in Blink, but he talks about it with artwork. Like, you know, people who can go into the Getty Museum in Malibu. Is it in Malibu? Mm -hmm. Is that right? You go into the Getty Museum, you look at the sculptures. Like, the professionals who go in there, they look at sculptures and they go, that's a fake. I don't know why, but it's. I think it's a fake. Mm -hmm. Like, they just have a feeling. And because it, it, there's just something not quite right about it. You go into a restaurant, what are those things that you would notice that would go to you, hey, something's off about this place. I don't know if I want to eat here. Uh, dirty floors, dirty yep. tables, boxes piled up in the corner, a restroom that looks like it hasn't been cleaned in a couple of weeks, uh, grumpy, grumpy employees, yeah. nobody there to greet you. Uh, nobody when, in the restaurant, nobody too. Nobody in the restaurant, yeah. Because that's always a sign. Like, nobody wants to go. I, I always, like, if two restaurants are side by side, and one of them, no one's in, and the other one's bustling, mm -hmm. you want to go to the one that's bustling because you're like, hey, they're, they're, it's lively in there. It must be good. Mm -hmm. So the same goes of the franchises. The Blazers organization, you know, um, good performance yesterday against Milwaukee, bad performance. You know, uh, Stephen, you watched that game. You know, what do you make of what the Blazers are doing here? Uh, last night was not a great performance. Uh, I think it highlighted a lot of the downfalls this team has when you look at Giannis just being bigger than everybody. And the Blazers have gone with this small lineup. It doesn't work. Uh, so, yeah, I think it was a bad performance yesterday. And I think, you know, since the new year, since 2023, it's been the same old story with the Blazers. And there hasn't been anything new. So you know, there's got to be some side of a change just organizationally, I think, for the Blazers to even rewrite what they've done. Yeah, but I feel like I've been here before and I've seen this movie over and over again and I am tired of it and you know, why don't they put a different movie on? I'm I'm sick of the scenery here. It, I need them to shake this up, take a shot, do what some of the other teams in the NBA are doing and here we have a trade deadline coming on Thursday. Do something about it. Simultaneously, I wrote today about Cal Athletics. I mentioned it earlier just a few minutes ago. Um you know, as an athletic department, it's not investing. It's not buying into spending money in men's basketball. They spent $7.5 million last year. Oregon spent 11. Uh, UCLA spent 11.9. Arizona spent 13 million. You can't win. You can't win if you're if you're not investing and you're not doing the little things that are necessary to, you know, we talk about revenue sharing in the NFL and why the NFL works. Like, not all Pac-12 schools are alike, and I'm paying more attention to that. I wish Cal would fix it. I wish the Blazers would fix it. You know, I wish the restaurant would clean up the floor and bust the tables and turn the lights on and put better music on and serve better food and get that cigarette out of your mouth, Flo. You can't serve people with cigarettes in your mouth. You know, 
That was one of our favorite shows was no. Bar Rescue. Oh, yeah. That John big tall guy. Tapper. He'd go in and just yell at all the employees and mostly yell at the owner for not running the restaurant properly. We need that guy to go into sports. Yeah. He walks into Moda Center. <laughs> hey, this is the problem. You guys, you, you need to get busy living. I want you to leave it here. The 5 at 5 is coming up. Top of the hour. You got the bald-faced truth. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Show sailing along. Sean Hyken will be joining us to talk about the NBA trade deadline coming up uh, at about 518 but before that, Anna's going to give us the five biggest, baddest stories in the land. The five at five. We do it every day. You ready, Anna? Yeah. Okay, she's ready. Let's do it, Stephen. The five at five. Number one, NASCAR driver Kyle Busch is addressing his arrest in Mexico over handgun possession. Mm. This was in late January when a handgun was discovered in his bag while he was boarding a private jet on his return to the United States after a vacation with his wife, Samantha. Here's the confusing part. Just yesterday, he was sentenced to three and a half years in a Mexican prison. He was fined $1,100. The statement from Mexico's prosecutor general does not explain how his three-and-a-half-year prison sentence will be handled at all. It did reveal that uh, six hollow-point cartridges were found inside Bush's handgun. He released his own statement yesterday saying the legal situation is, quote, closed. He's saying that he has a valid concealed carry permit here in the U.S., but he made a mistake and forgot that his handgun was in his bag. He was not aware of Mexican law, had no intention of bringing a handgun into Mexico, and cooperated with authorities. And by the way, finished third in Sunday's NASCAR Clash, Clash exhibition race. There's a, there's a few takeaways here. First and foremost, if you go to a foreign country, you have to abide by their rules. Brittany Griner, Kyle Busch, you may get special treatment in America because of who you are, but first of all, if you're going somewhere else, abide by their rules secondarily he might want to find a different destination for his vacations and his getaways um, I find it interesting that he considers this closed is that is that all you have to say if you're accused of a crime in Mexico you have to just come back to the US and go me and my family consider this case closed and it's closed <laughs> I'm just I, I the two don't make sense to me how he could be sentenced to three and a half years come back race in a race and say this legal matter is closed probably paid a fine i'm using air quotes there to get out of this thing but um it's the other thing is nascar says they're not going to punish him they have a clause that is uh sort of a behavior clause which you do on your own time kind of thing yeah they they have a clause (laughs) but apparently carrying a weapon into another country not a violation of that cool I'm not saying I blame the guy either. I feel like there's a lot of people 
probably who would say, hey, I'm going into a country, I'm a celebrity, I feel I don't feel safe. But if that's your feeling, why are you going there? I just don't, how do you forget that you have a handgun the whole time that you're on vacation? That's what I'm confused about. I don't want to go anywhere where I feel like I need to bring a handgun on vacation. How much luggage do you have to bring into a country to forget that somewhere buried under your underwear, socks, jeans, uh, and bathing suits is a handgun? Well, I think it happens. It's an anonymous mistake. <laughs> Maybe the Kyle Busch underwear that he comes out with uh, you know, oh will have a holster in it, like Tom Brady. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Put your uh, 38 right there on your side. Don't mm -hmm. at me. I don't want to have a gun control debate. I'm just saying, if you feel like you need a weapon, is that really a vacation? Bring a slingshot, okay? Bring a spear. Number two in our five at five, go. Uh, a lot of talk about the betting that's going to be happening around Super Bowl 57. 50 million Americans, 50, 5 0, are expected to bet on the Super Bowl. And uh, that's not a small number of Americans. It's interesting to me because, like, at least half of those people don't really know what they're doing. They're just betting to have fun, right? It's like 20% of the country is betting on the Super Bowl. I saw that BetMGM said the two most popular Super Bowl prop bets both involved Travis Kelsey tied into the Chiefs. Kelsey to score the first touchdown is the most popular prop bet that people are betting. Or Kelsey to score anytime. I think Mama Kelsey is playing a role in that one. Uh, everybody betting on the Eagles to beat the Chiefs, too. The Eagles are uh, driving that line. Will not be surprised if it if it uh, moves a little bit and the Chiefs are getting more points as kickoff approaches. But I, I just find it's interesting how cavalier people are about the wagering. Mm -hmm. Like, when you're at a Super Bowl party, I don't think... I don't think you should be telling the whole room what you've bet on. <laughs> you know what I mean? Really? No. Yeah? Uh-uh. Because I don't know. It's kind of like Fantasy League. Yeah. I don't know that everybody in the room cares. Yeah. But everybody's like, oh, I got this or I got that. Uh -huh. Like, if you have a close friend, like Steven will text. Steven and I will text a little bit. Steven will be like, hey, I got this, the Lakers in this game, whatnot. We go back and forth. I think that's okay because I know Steven's interested in that. Yeah. But I don't think, like... Your friend Gina is going to be interested. I don't think, you know, your friend, I don't think any of your friends are going to be interested. Like, if they're hanging out, should I be like, hey, you know what? I got the no score in the first six minutes. Like, they're not going to care. Well, we're stopping in at a Super Bowl party this weekend, and we're, we were instructed to bring cash to, to, you know, bet on one of those grid things. Yeah. Are we going to do that? That's fine. I don't know how much cash they want. I don't, no, they, they're not specifying the amount. They're the, just saying oh, bring cash. So I should just bring a, a case <laughs> with a handcuff around my wrist? <laughs> Sounds like a family discussion. Yeah. Good thing you mentioned this. Yeah. So this is my life. Number three in the five at five. Go. All right. We've been talking about Aaron Rodgers and his darkness retreat, but I think this is interesting. So we talked about yesterday how he won the Pebble Beach Pro-Am over the weekend with his partner, Ben Silverman. But PGA Tour player Keith Mitchell okay. is calling the victory into question. He is saying that uh, the quarterback's adjusted handicap of 10, uh, he's not buying it. It's crap. 
He actually calls it that, I think. Um, according to the Wisconsin State Golf Association, Roger's handicap is registered at a three at his home course, mm. the Green Bay Country Club. At the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, all the amateurs get a bump from their home handicaps to take into consideration the challenging venues and the crowds. He seems to have gotten a bigger boost than needed. Mitchell thinks that he and his partner won and that, that Roger's handicap was crap. Yeah, I think there's a problem there. I've covered this event many, many times. I've probably covered that event more than I've covered anything just because it was in close proximity to where I grew up and some papers I worked at. It's supposed to be this fun, lively event, like Bill Murray, you know, making fun of things, Kevin Costner, whatnot. But then you get stuff like this now. Josh Allen told Rogers, hey, I wish I, I got 10 shots, too. I only got nine. Um, but Rogers says this is his real handicap. Maybe when he gets in darkness, he'll do some reflecting on it. And what will become clear to him is he's probably like a four. It's not a ten. It means he gets ten shots. Yeah, I don't even know what that means. That's fine. Number four in our <laughs> five at five. Let's go. Uh, L.A. Rams rookie Ronnie Rivers wins big in Vegas. He almost matched his entire NFL salary in one night. What? The Rams running back won half a million dollars playing cards uh, at Caesars Palace in Vegas on Saturday. He got lucky at the mega progressive jackpot table. He pulled a royal flush at the three-card poker table, which wow. is the most improbable hand that you can hold. Uh, the odds of that are 1 in 649,000. So the jackpot sign at the table climbed up to more than $514,000. Way to go. Former Fresno State running back signed with the Rams. Made the active roster. He made seven hundred thousand. He'll get a base salary of eight hundred seventy thousand next year. And I'm sure what you're going to see is him on a billboard at Caesar's Palace, going, "I hit it big at Caesar's." That's what you'll see when you walk in there for the Pac-12 tournament if you're going to it. Good for Ronnie Rivers. This is probably good for Vegas too because they know they're going to get a lot of love and people going, "Well, I could go and win that as well." Number five in the five at five. What do you got? Uh, you guys have talked about it, but it is worth mentioning. LeBron James on the brink of becoming the all-time leading scorer in the NBA history. But he already believes he's the best player to uh, ever have played the sport. He says, what I bring to the table as a basketball player, I feel like I'm the best basketball player that ever played the game. That's just my confidence to what I bring to the table. Humble. That's not Stay even humble. a humble Stay brag. Humble, it's just a brag. Um, you know, I the more I've been doing this five at five, I am really impressed with how LeBron manages to be in the headlines every single day. Do you think it's exhausting at some point being LeBron James? It probably is. And you probably start to believe everything that is said about you. And you start saying things like, I am the greatest of all time. Uh, but the truth is, he's going to have more points than anybody. You know, he's, uh, but he's still second all time in career 30 point games. Michael Jordan's got 32 more than him. Uh, he, uh, he also, by the way, you talk about 40 point games. LeBron has 74 40 point games. Do you know how far away he is from the all time record for 40 point games, Stephen? No idea. Wilt Chamberlain holds the record. LeBron's got. 74 times he scored 40 points or more in a game. 
Will Chamberlain has done it 271 times. LeBron ain't getting there. He's not going to break that. So, um, you know, and he has 14 50-point games. Same number as Damian Lillard. So there you go. But LeBron's the only player with 50-point games, multiple 50-point games, after turning 35 years old. Keep an eye on that. That's the five at five, five biggest things ever. Uh, is Are you tired of talking about LeBron, more importantly? Uh, I am. I, I don't feel like talking about him, and yet I feel like I have to sometimes talk about him. I am curious about, like, the different measurements, you know, when we're evaluating the greatest basketball player of all time. Because there's, there's all different ways that you can look at it, right? right? Winning championships, um, scoring points. Um, but, you know, sometimes... I've often thought, like with the Heisman Trophy, you know, it's supposed to be awarded to the best college football player in America. It isn't. Like, the best player in America might be an offensive lineman somewhere, but doesn't sort of have the metrics of, you know, who we view as the greatest of all time. Mm -hmm. I think um, sometimes there's no doubt. Like, I look at Michael Jordan. He won the championships, okay? He never got beat in an NBA Finals. He was the scoring leader. He was the best defensive player in the league at different points of his career. He, he did it all. He was the greatest of all time. Tom Brady sort of ended the debate with quarterbacks, seven Super Bowl championships. You know, it, it, you know, it just sort of dwarfs everybody else. LeBron, to me, generational player, he's not Michael Jordan. You know, he's not Kareem. He's not Chamberlain. He's not Bill Russell who's got, you know, 11 championships. It's it's a, a different it's different metrics. And I think you're right there. It's like who's the greatest mom of all time? <laughs> like, you know? Well, there's definitely no stats being kept on that. I don't know, Steven, are you with LeBron on this that he's the greatest of all time? Uh no, he's not he's not better than Jordan, but I mean, if you just look at straight numbers, you could definitely make an argument LeBron is the guy, but it's one of those things like John's right. It's it's what do you take into consideration? Because championship culture is so important, and MJ is always going to have, well, he never lost in NBA Finals, where LeBron and the timing of when he was winning championships in the Eastern Conference, like, it wasn't very strong. And so he was making all these finals with the Cavs and the Heat, but, you know, the biggest contenders they had were, like, the Pacers, and they weren't very good. So it's like, I don't know, I I, I think I, I would rate LeBron a little higher than John would, uh, but I don't think he's def- I don't think he's close to Michael. I look at, you know, just LeBron's record in the NBA Finals games. You know, Jordan was 24-11 and 11 in NBA Finals games, okay? Like, you know, and he won six championships, 24-11. and 11, That makes sense. Wow, great record. You look at LeBron's record in uh, NBA Finals games in his career, he's 22-33. and 33. You know, to me, that's where it ends. And also... Let's just say in their prime, we're on a playground, and Jordan's there and LeBron's there. I don't think very many people would pick LeBron if you had a, you know, here you get the first pick. <laughs> I think LeBron, like he'd be, a, he's a great player. He's physically imposing, maybe the most physically imposing gifted player of all time. Certainly a generational player. It's no knock on him, but this is what we do on sports radio. Um, but Jordan was a killer. I don't care if we're playing basketball or horseshoes or hopscotch or golf. I'm taking Michael Jordan. Because he's going to beat you. And LeBron's going to sit there and he's going to whine about, you know, something being off. <laughs> I don't know. The gym's too warm. I don't know. <laughs> Leave it here. We'll talk some NBA trade deadline with Sean Hyken 
He covers the NBA. Will the Blazers be a buyer, a seller, or a spectator on Thursday? Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. NBA trade deadline Thursday. We've seen one big deal in the NBA. Will there be more? Will the Blazers be a buyer, a seller, or a spectator? And what does Sean Hyken know about any of this? You can subscribe to the Rose Garden Report. Sean Hyken uh, does this. He covers the Blazers in the NBA. He has for years. He's joining us now. Before I get into the Blazers stuff, Sean, uh, let's talk about the WNBA. You were part of that roundtable discussion with the WNBA commissioner yesterday. How did that go? I was not part of it. I was there covering it as uh, media. But, yes, it was, for those of you who don't know, basically uh, Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner of the WNBA, was in town for meetings at Nike, which is obviously one of the league's partners. And Senator Wyden had her at uh, the Sports Bra, which is a a sports bar in uh, northeast Portland that only airs women's sports. It opened about a year ago, and it's done quite well business-wise. That's my first, that was my first time being in there, but it looked like a pretty cool space. But they had a bunch of people there basically trying to give her the sell on why Portland should be one of the two uh, expansion teams, which the WNBA has been reported is looking into expanding. And so some of the names there, you know, you had both, Kelly Graves, the head coach of the Oregon women's team, and Scott Roof, the head coach of the uh, Oregon State women's team there, some of their players. And then from the Blazers, Joe Cronin, obviously uh, the general manager, Dwayne Hankins, the president of uh, business operations, and two members of Joe's front office who are both former WNBA players, Asia Jones, who's the director of basketball planning and strategy, basically manages her salary cap. And Cherie Sam, who is the scouting manager, it was basically just like a, it was about an hour of basically all of these people going around and telling Kathy Engelbert why Portland should get a WNBA team. And so it'll be interesting, I guess, to see whether it's successful eventually. Yeah, with the vibe in the room, I mean, I, who could be against this? Because I think, you know, Portland makes sense for a number of reasons. The Ducks, the Beavers, the success, even the University of Portland and Portland State have had success in women's basketball. It feels like this is a natural thing. What is it going to take to get a WNBA franchise to Portland? It's up to the league. I mean, they're they're deciding between – I think there are my, – my colleague Mike Vorkanov at The Athletic uh, had reported about six months ago that the six cities currently on the short list are – of teams that are being considered right now are Portland, San Francisco, Oakland, Toronto, Philadelphia, and uh, Nashville. I have heard that the league's kind of top priority right now, and I just wrote something about this this morning. I wrote Garden Report for subscribers, but basically right now I think the league would really like for there to be a team in the Bay Area, and Joe Lake, the owner of the Warriors, has talked about wanting to put a team at Chase Center. So that's something I think they're looking pretty strongly at. I think Toronto is something that really interests the league because you know they, they've seen like, how successful the Raptors have been as the only NBA team in Canada and they think that there's an appetite for that there but since you know WNBA players still fly commercial to games there might be some border and visa and customs issues there so I mean those I would say uh, Toronto and the Bay Area are probably the other two main cities out of that group that have you know the most competition for Portland I think they're definitely in the mix it's just kind of a matter of what the league Decides. I totally agree with you, John, though. I think there's no reason between not just the, 
you know, women's basketball programs at the colleges here, but also just with how well the Thorns do. And honestly, the fact that this event yesterday was held at a, a sports bar that exists only to show women's sports, but apparently, and again, I hadn't been there before yesterday, but apparently during, like, big events, like, you know, during, like, Thorns matches and, uh, you know, Oregon and Oregon State women's basketball games, it's, like, impossible to get in. Apparently, the place is packed. The fact that you're a city that has an establishment like that that's doing really well and doing good business would make you think that a WNBA team would be really successful here. And from what I've heard from folks on the Blazers' side, uh, they would be very, you know, into the – I don't think the Vulcans would want to own the team necessarily. There's a guy that I think wants to own it, Kirk Brown, who co-founded Zoom Info, who's a billionaire. But – the Blazers, and you know, you heard Dwayne Hankins say this on the panel last night, and Joe Cronin said this too. The Blazers would be totally supportive of it, and they would love to have basketball played at Moda Center during the summer, during the off season, and have those dates. And they think it would be good for the city. So, I mean, I think it would be really successful, but it's just you know, it's up to the league and up to kind of their business partners. Sean Hyken, Rose Garden Report, is our guest. Uh, trade deadline coming Thursday. I, I said it uh, as I introduced you, Blazers as a buyer, seller, spectator. Where are you leaning right now? Uh, I say will say what I've been saying for a long time. I think they would like to be buyers. I think their mindset is very much still, we're trying to make the playoffs. We're trying to be competitive. They're not, they're not one thing I can tell you, I know they're not going to be sellers in the sense I don't think they're interested in taking a step back and playing for the lottery. They kind of already did that last year, and that was kind of they kind of had a free pass to do that last year because Dane was actually legitimately injured and needed the surgery, and so they kind of had an excuse to do that last year. I don't think they're really interested in do, doing that this year. I think it's, it's going to be more – you're not going to see them doing anything big. Like, I, I don't think there's going to be anything that, you know, they, they do some trade, and it's like, are the Blazers title contenders? Now? I, I don't think that's, anything like that is going to happen in the next two days. But it's going to, I think they, they will make a couple of moves. I don't, you know, I have, I have a few guesses as to what they might be or who they might go after. They're just kind of guesses at this point. Nothing I'm solid enough to necessarily, you know, want to go on the record with. But, you know, I think it's going to be a lot of like switching out kind of role players for other role players that maybe fit better or have, you know, better salaries or, you know, balance that kind of stuff. It's going to be more like incremental stuff. And then whatever they do that's bigger, that's to quote unquote really put a contender around Dame, I think that's going to happen more this summer than at the deadline. Sean, can I ask you, what does this team need in your mind to just take an incremental step forward? Is there, if it's not going to be a big move, is there a step forward that could be out there for them at a certain position or a kind of player that you think needs to be added? Size. <laughs> That's kind of a simple answer. You, you just saw last night against the Bucks. Yep. They had nobody that could even come close to thing in front of Giannis. Or, you know, a couple of weeks ago when they had, they lost those back-to-back games to the Nuggets and to the Sixers, they had no – they just had, don't have anything that you can do with Joel Embiid or Nikola Jokic or that kind of guy. And, like, you know, especially with Nurkic being out for a while. And I wouldn't be surprised if Nurkic is one of the players that gets moved in the next two days. But you look at – you look at side – I mean, Drew Eubanks is doing everything he can, but he is not a starting He's probably, in, on a good team, he's probably not even a number two center. He's a number three center, and he's great in that role. He's a great, you know, 12 to 15 minutes a game guy. But that's your starting center right now. And then, you know, Trendon Watford, who, you know, has made a lot of, you know, improvements in his second season, but he's also kind of undersized. I think that's kind of the biggest area of need right now. And I would expect that whatever they do in the next 
40 hours or however many hours there is or until the deadline uh, is going to maybe be, you know, geared towards addressing that more so than anything else. I keep thinking about, you know, the Phoenix Suns deal just closed. That team is sold. It Does the ownership question, does it, does it cloud, uh, you know, uh, uh, any moves that they can make? G- meaning, you know, do they not want to give up flexibility? Do they want want to take a big swing because maybe this ownership group isn't here for the long haul? Do you think that is a factor as the trade deadline comes down or a non-factor? I don't think it's that much of a factor. I have I haven't heard that. They, so they're, they're, the Blazers are about sixty seven thousand dollars below the luxury tax. So they're basically right at the line right now. They're as close to it as they can be. I don't think they will go into the luxury tax unless it's to add a piece that makes them a true contender. I haven't heard that they have a mandate of you can't go into the luxury tax no matter what. I think it's but it's I think I think it's just a matter of, you know, I don't think they'll be willing to go into the tax and only have the taxpayer mid-level exception to work with this summer and start their clock on paying the repeater tax in order to make some incremental moves. I think I I haven't I haven't heard that anything with ownership is, uh, you know, preventing them from doing anything, you know, as far as spending money or anything like that. I just, I, I, I don't think ownership is that big of a factor. And I just, I just, I, I would, I would expect them not to make any big moves for other reasons, just because I don't know how many big moves are really out there to be made right now at the deadline. I keep hearing people say, you know, Damian Lillard deserves the Blazers to put more pieces around him. We're watching other stars in this league uh, grow impatient. How much patience does Lillard have in your mind right now? I haven't heard anything to suggest that they're anywhere close to uh, being that being a question. I would think that after he signed the extension, that was kind of a dead issue. I mean, that's that's what they're trying to do, and I think it's going to. And I think you know, they everybody involved here has been very open and very transparent about this is going to be a multiple year process where. I don't think anybody thought, oh, they're going to, you know, build a contender last offseason or they're going to build a contender at this deadline. Joe Cronin said when he took the job about a year ago that it's going to take multiple cycles of, you know, deadlines and offseasons and having different, you know, tools to use at his disposal. I would guess, if I had to guess, that whatever the big move they make, I don't know what that might be. Like, let's say, you know, totally pie in the sky. Let's say that given everything that's going on in Brooklyn in the last, few days let's say that this summer Kevin Durant decides he's unhappy again and you know you make that call and you try to make that happen if they do anything like that or anything to that level to get like a legitimate like second guy that's going to happen more so this summer than any other time maybe really pushing it at uh you know next deadline if that's when the move comes available but I, I would I would I would guess whatever big move they made this is just a guess I don't know this for a fact because I don't know what's going to be out there this summer but I would guess that whatever the big, you know, the quote-unquote big all-in swing that they make is going to happen more so this summer than any other time. Sean Hyken with us, rosegardenreport.com. That's where you can read him, subscribe to him. I do. Sean, let me ask you, uh, Chauncey Billups, this roster, this team, I'm having a hard time figuring out if Chauncey can coach. Is he growing? What do you make of the coaching job that he has done to this point? It's been up and down. I think he's. I think he's still learning, and I think he'd be the first one to tell you that he's still learning. I mean, I think there's certainly issues that can be had with some of the rotations and some of that. But as far as as far as like the personal stuff, like the you know, our guys still playing hard for him, all that kind of stuff. I haven't heard anything to suggest that that isn't the case. I think. I think it's. I think it's just like everything else. I think it's very much a work in progress right now. 
him. The you know I I keep looking at this team and going all right you know who do I like who do I don't like is there anybody on this roster that in your mind is untouchable as Thursday approaches or who's in that conversation of hey uh, this guy has too much upside I wouldn't be willing to part with him does anybody fit that bill? I think Dame's the only thing that's completely off the table. I, there are guys I would not expect them to be to trade. I like I don't I don't think Anthony Simons will be traded. I don't think Shaden Sharp will be traded. I don't think that Jeremy Grant will be traded. Those are the three guys I would put in kind of the next tier of like they're not shopping them. They're not trying to move them. I don't think they want to move them. But if Brooklyn called and said, "Hey, we'll give you Kevin Durant for those three guys," I don't think they would say no. Like that that's kind of the second tier. Dame is the only guy that's completely untouchable what I know, but I think those other three are kind of the next ones that it would you'd have to completely blow them away for them to actually say yes. Sean Hyken is with us. All right, uh, I got to ask you about Kyrie Irving, Dallas. Who's the winner in that trade in your mind, and does it work for Irving and the Mavericks? <laughs> I mean, I think the winner is probably the Brooklyn Nets organization for just, you know, being able to wash their hands of this. I, I, I'm very interested to see how this goes with, with Dallas. I, th- I think basically what's going to happen is there's – remember when they first traded for James Harden and there were those handful of games where it was the three of them together and they were all healthy and you were watching and you're just like, wow, like how is anybody supposed to stop this? This team might just be the greatest offense of all time. There are going to be nights with him and Luca, where it looks like that, and people are just wondering how anybody's possibly going to be able to guard this. But, you know, if you're asking me would I want to be the organization that wants to get into the business of having Kyrie Irving on your team with, you know, all of the, you know, things that also come with that, I, me personally, I would not. Yeah, I keep looking at it. And, and do you think they're serious, Brooklyn's serious about Durant being not on the table, or is that just what you say until you get a deal you love? I don't think he's going to get traded before Thursday. I think if that were to happen, it's going to happen this summer because I think it's kind of too short of notice for everything. You know, everybody has so many other moving parts in the air right now. I think they'll probably get more offers and better offers uh, over the summer if that's the direction that they decide to go in. I think they feel like, uh, you know, Durant is so good that, you know, with the pieces that they got back, or Kyrie Irving with Dorian Finney-Smith and Spencer Dinwiddie, and then who knows if they're able to flip one of those two guys into something else uh, before the deadline. I think they feel like we can still be competitive in the East, and then you know they'll figure out what they do with Durant long-term, or if he decides he still wants to be there, or what, you know, whatever the case may be. I, I don't think that's going to happen in the next two days. I think if that's going to happen, it's going to happen in the offseason. How do you handle rumors? Because they're out there, you're going to hear names, Dates. I've been told by other NBA executives that by the time you hear a rumor, it's uh, the deal is probably done. But what's your philosophy when you hear trade rumors? I try to like I said I've been doing this long enough. I think I have a pretty good radar for what's worth taking seriously and what's not. The thing that people kind of have to keep in mind is you heard something because somebody wanted you to hear it. Nobody's telling reporters or whoever this stuff just out of the goodness of their heart because they feel like being helpful sharing info people will put stuff out there because you know we'll say we'll tell a reporter hey you know we talked about this guy or we're going after this guy or i heard this team is going after this guy or i heard you know this team offered this or what you know whatever people will put that stuff out there or you know to reporters because they want reporters to you know put it out there to people because 
they think that that will benefit them in some way. So you always, whenever you see a rumor about, you know, whether it's about a trade or, you know, a free agent, you know, interest or whatever else, you have to think, you have to like stop and think, who benefits from this being out there and why would they want this out there? And then you usually can kind of go from there and say, okay, like this team probably leaked that they got this offer for this player because then they want other teams to see that and say, hey, if we want this guy, we better step up our offer. Like, I, I, I do my best, and I think I'm kind of in a little bit of a different place because I don't do what, you know, guys like Woj and Shams and Chris Haynes and, like, the guys who are, like, the newsbreaker scoop guys. They you know, I have a ton of respect for those guys, and they're great at what they do, but that's just that's not really what I do, so I'm not really losing a lot of sleep over, like, whether I'm the first person to report a trade or a free agent signing, and so I just kind of try to, you know, if I hear stuff, I, you know, I, I – you know, talk to people, you know, both within the Blazers front office and, you know, in other front offices and around the league and whatever else, and just kind of try to piece together, like, okay, how much of this is real and how much of it is, uh, is you know, smoke. I'd probably have a lot more Twitter followers and a lot more, you know, like making a lot more money if I were, you know, willing to just kind of throw out, like, oh, sources say this, sources say that, out of, like, every single rumor that I hear, but I'm just, that's not really a game I've ever been interested in playing. That's why you're on the show, though. I mean, you're a substance guy. I subscribe to what you're doing at the Rose Garden Report. I think you work hard, and you do a hell of a job. Are you having fun with that? Because, you know, you've, you've made the transition uh, similar to what I have done. Uh, you know, how different is it for you, and how much fun are you having? Uh, there are pros and cons with it. I like being able to decide what I have to – what I care about and what I don't care about. Like, yeah. there, are, there are some things like – you know, there was a, there was a, I think over the summer, I can't remember who it was, but on, you know, one of those, you know, debate shows, one of the, you know, whoever, it was like Stephen A. Smith or some, I forget who it was, it was some, somebody on one of those shows was like, Damian Lillard is not a superstar, he is a star, and like, and there was like, you know, that became like a whole thing that people got mad about for two days on Twitter, and I was just like, I do not care about this, I am just not even going to write about this or acknowledge it or whatever, like, I don't have to write about every single trade rumor I hear, I, I basically get to decide, like, what's important and what's not. I mean, and then as far as the downsides, like, and I know, you know, you, John, I think you, you know, the way that you kind of found an end around to this is you kind of hire photographers. I don't really have kind of the budget to do that, but I don't have AP or Getty licenses. So I'm kind of limited to photos that I uh, take or, you know, screenshots of YouTube or screenshots of people's social media or that kind of stuff. And you kind of take for granted when you're at, you know, at major outlets, like, you know, when I was at, you know, the athletic or USA today or bleach report or whatever, or when you were at the Oregonian, you have access to those photos and you have access to actual images and you can just use whatever you want. That's something that I've kind of had to adjust to. Yeah. But you're doing a hell of a job and your content is different and you're getting, giving people some stuff they can't get anywhere else on the NBA. Sean Hyken, Rose Garden Report. Thank you. Always good to talk to you, John. Good stuff from hiking there. And look, yeah, he's right. Like, you know, I, I just made the I made the commitment last football season in particular to say I consider photography an important part of what I'm doing at johnconzano.com. And I got who I think are the best two sports photographers in the region and went to him and said, Look, I'm I want to do something different. And I want you to be part of it. And, you know, between uh, basically Najee and Serena, uh, who are, I think, the best one-two punch, I would put the two photographers that I have working at johnconzano.com against any two photographers in the country. Like, anybody's, any new, I'll put it against the New York Times. 
They're that good. They are award-winning sports photographers who are dynamite. But I thought, this is important. I need to have this. And it, you know, the photo galleries even, which I often probably didn't appreciate before I went off on my own, I just kind of recognized, like, how special that is to have really good photography, sports photography, action shots off the college football games, college football basketball games, and whatnot. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. George Kleofka, Pac 12 Commissioners on the Move. Steven, you had it in your update. Where's Kleofkov today? Yeah, according to the Action Network, uh, Kleofkov, he's going to be visiting SMU tomorrow. So it should be pretty interesting. Interesting to see that. So uh, Kleofkov at SMU. Um, I do think SMU is a possibility for Pac-12 expansion. I also think if we're talking about real expansion, here are the candidates that, you know, I have explored and vetted. It starts with, of course, San Diego State. I think they are definitely part of the equation. I'd be surprised if they're not added. The question is, does the Pac-12 go beyond 11? Do they move to 12? If they do, the candidates then become SMU, UNLV, uh, maybe after that Boise State, Fresno State. Uh, There is a possibility that the Pac-12 could go into other parts of Texas or become a Raider, not an Oakland Raider, but take a look at the Big 12 Conference and decide, hey, is there something there that is worth chasing that makes sense? Now, if you're going to grab SMU and you're going to say it's SMU and it's San Diego State, cool, but you're kind of putting SMU in a position where they have to travel an awful lot. You're not giving them a travel partner. You're not giving them one game in conference play that is less than others. I start to look at Houston. I start to look at Baylor. I start to look at Texas Tech. All of those things come with complications and tentacles, meaning you could presumably end up in litigation with the Big 12 or having to pay somebody's buyout in that conference. I think it's super interesting that Klyovkov's there. Um, I think it's interesting that this got public. Uh, I do think the Pac-12 is looking at media rights, and then expansion. So him being on the move, visiting SMU, could just be a courtesy. Could just be uh, he's being polite, he's listening to them, he's talking with them. But the fact that you know he's doing this tells me that their media rights is probably wrapping up, and they have pivoted their attention to expansion. I think this is good. I think it's a positive development. SMU obviously... The advantage of SMU is it gets you into the state of Texas where you can recruit, gets you into the Dallas TV market. It's a postage stamp-sized campus, but there's a whole bunch of money at SMU and a whole bunch of donors and a lot of interest from the Mustangs in being part of the haves versus the have-nots. And currently they're a little bit like a university that doesn't have a conference they feel great about. So I think they'd be happy to come into the Pac-12 now. Would they come at a discount? That's the question. I I'll reach a, out on the yeah, – well, I got a question for you. Do you think it's a must for the Pac-12 to add teams? Because I feel like now with USC, UCLA leaving, 
the football conference actually has some really good teams outside of those two LA schools. Like it was a really good year. Do you think it's necessary to actually bring in more Pac-12 teams or just go back to the Pac-10? Only if they're going to bring value to your media deal. That's it. That's what expansion's always about. It's why Big Ten went after USC, UCLA. It's why they went once upon a time after uh, Maryland. It's you know, it's why the SEC is after Texas and. You know, they're not trying to uh, they're not trying to just do it because, hey, this makes us better on the field. No, this is about bringing in better media markets. And so I think that the incentive from the Pac-12 to grow would come because, hey, they're sitting at 10. They know that they could sit they could stand pat at 10. They don't have to expand. It's kind of why I think Boise State and Fresno State are going to be out of luck here, even though I think these two universities really want to be part of uh, expansion unless they're coming at a steep discount, they don't make sense. They don't pencil out because there's only 517,000 TV households in all of Idaho. So, But San Diego State makes sense because you're talking about you know, 1.2 million TV homes in Southern California. And you're talking about, you know, you're not replacing the divot of UCLA and USC, but you're getting back into Southern California in a meaningful way. You're going to play games there. So you can tell... Your other conference members can tell their recruits, hey, you're going to play a game in San Diego State. You'll play some games in Southern California that, you know, that it's not like USC and UCLA leaving altogether will uh, will leave them out. So keep an eye on that as it develops. I'll make, some, I'll make a quick call during the break. I'll find out how serious this is. Stick around. More ahead. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. I'm told that uh, George Kiafkoff's potential visit to SMU on Wednesday um, is exploratory, not a formality as it comes to expansion. So keep an eye on the next few days. I'll know more on tomorrow's show, and uh, we'll get John Wilner on the program as well as we can discuss what it really means. In the meantime, I can tell you that a couple of days ago, the athletic director at Fresno State, Terry Toomey, reached out to me, which I thought was really unusual, in that the schools that are potential expansion candidates for the Pac-12, I think know that the ball is potentially moving here. Um, I don't fully buy into what Brett McMurphy of the Action Network is reporting as far as the Pac-12's potential um, media rights deal, heavy digital streaming, all that. I think it's still going to be ESPN. Uh, ESPN, Amazon, some blend of that with potentially maybe another network involved in some small fashion. But uh, really interesting to kind of study this stuff. I also noted that on Twitter today, Bob Thompson, the former president of Fox Sports Networks, he had an interesting tweet in which he said he needed to go dark. Meaning, he there was some sensitive subject. He had probably been retained as a consultant and needed to step back from making public comments. So I think it's really interesting to hear 
that, you know, there's probably some traction to this in the sense that the timing of it is that the Pac-12s was said they were going to do their media rights deal, and then they were going to very quickly pivot into expansion. It was explained to me by uh, a Pac-12 athletic director that I trust. He said, triple jump. It will be like, uh, you know, when you see the triple jump, hop, skip, jump, it's going to be uh, media rights, then expansion, and boom, an announcement. Boom, boom, boom. So uh, I, I think we're kind of getting to the point where George Klyopkov's focus is now pivoting from, hey, the media rights deal is wrapping. I did say yesterday and the day before, and I, I still believe it today, that he's got to have something to talk about here about four weeks from now when he shows up at the men's and women's basketball tournaments in Vegas. This can't be simply talking about, um, hey, these are great teams. No, you have to be able to talk about your media deal. So I do think we're going to get some movement. I think people in San Diego have the best shot of getting into the conference. I won't be surprised if the Pac-12 stays at 10 or 11. Uh, But if there's going to be a 12 or a 13 or a 14, I would say SMU, UNLV, and then I'll put a wild card possibility out there that there's a team that we're not, or a program or university that we're not talking about yet that could have a shot. I'll give you another bit of intel that, you know, nobody's really talked about. Brett Yormark, the Big 12 commissioner, was supposed to be on the Konzano and Wilner podcast last week. He canceled on his appearance last week and postponed. I kind of wondered if he canceled and postponed because there's something going on with one of the potential incoming Big 12 members. Just speculating at this point. But I'll see what I can find out today, overnight. I'll post tomorrow at johnconzano.com. If you're really into Pac-12 expansion, media rights, all that, make sure you're subscribed. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. Whatever works for you at johnconzano.com and check that out. What do we have coming up next here? Peter Sampson and the Pulse coming up top of the hour. I want you to leave it here as Peter Sampson is going to obviously dive deeper on this and uh, Thursday's potential NBA trade movement here in Portland. It's always a good listen. That is next right here on 750 The Game. The bald-faced truth is not here for a long time, just a good time. Appreciate everybody making this show part of their day. We're back tomorrow with another great show.